Hey everyone, this is Chorps Way, and before we get started on this episode, I just wanted uh, to give a quick content warning. Uh, the show we're discussing today deals with a number of heavy topics, including domestic abuse, incestual relationships, and non-consensual sex. So if any of these things disturb you, it might be better off to, to skip this episode. But if this isn't a problem, continue on. And I hope you enjoy our episode on Revolutionary Girl Utena. Today on Coco Disaster, every rose duelist has its thorn. Hi, and welcome to Coco Disaster. I'm Chorpsaway, and today we have a special guest. Please join me in welcoming the first woman in podcasting history. Uh, I'm Sweet and Awful, also known as Karen Sweet. And welcome to the show, Karen. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, so today we're going to be doing a single serving on a show uh, much beloved, and I think has a particular importance to you, Sweet. <laughs> Uh, maybe a lot. And it's, it's, uh, oddly, like, cognizant because, or oddly poignant because it's also the 20th anniversary of the series. That's right, it's 1997's Revolutionary Girl Utena. And we'll also be covering the follow-up movie, Adolescence of Utena. Uh, isn't, like, the alternate name, like, Adolescent Apocalypse Utena? That might be. I feel like there have been a lot of names for it. <laughs> uh, it has many names. Yeah, it's... So, uh, a little bit of background. Uh, so this is... I think this is a fairly popular series, as it were. It's definitely, like, held up in sort of the same pantheon as, say, like, Evangelion, which came out, like, a year earlier. And definitely its uh, director, Kunihiko Ikuhara, is sort of held up in that same sort of, like, auteur status... Uh, for anime fans. It has a lot of, like, flips and subversions on the shoujo genre compared to, like, Evangelion, like, flipping, like, mecha on its head. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting that they come out so close together when both of them are sort of these, like, critiques on the genres that they're so heavily inspired by. But uh, for some quick background, uh, the director, Ikuhara, had before this worked on Sailor Moon, becoming sort of the primary director around the third season, uh, doing the third and fourth seasons of Sailor Moon, as well as the movie Sailor Moon R. And because he felt like he didn't have enough creative freedom on this project, he decided to leave Toei and start a production group called Be Papas, which is this production group of five... Um, five talents from across like manga and anime at the time uh, including the author 
um, Chiho Saito, the screenwriter Yoji Inokido, uh, the animator Shinya Hasegawa, and the writer and producer Yuichiro Ogoro. And this would be the only anime and manga, because there was a manga coming out at the same time, that they worked together on. Uh, it's actually, like, kind of good that he didn't have, like, as much control as he wanted, in my opinion. Because I think there's one thing I've learned from looking at, like, Utena and the production, is that it only works because it's a complete fluke. Yeah, so, um, I think what they talk about is, these five people, while they all had their own separate roles, would constantly talk to each other about the themes and the content of what they wanted to do, and then sort of let the animation group and the manga group do their own thing, but they all collaborated on these ideas and polished them into this sort of, like, sheen. And Ikahara has stated that a lot of Revolutionary Girl Lieutenant came from ideas for a Sailor Moon movie that he ended up leaving early in the production of, and ultimately came together to create Revolutionary Girl Lieutenant with all of these people. And it, it it became a real, I feel, standout hit. Like, this got certainly him on the map, and it was very progressive, I'd say, for the time. It's definitely got a lot more... Um, whereas, like, Sailor Moon definitely was, like, pushing the boundaries of sort of, like, um, female relationships. This was, like cranking that up even another notch is very very like big into exploring all different kinds of relationships and uh like dynamics between people in all these different sorts of ways it's a very thoughtful show and a very i i think progressive is a good word for it for sort of the themes and stuff that it wanted to say about all these different types of characters which that didn't stop, like, early fans of the show, like, still being, like, very, like, queer racing towards its themes. So that's always an interesting, like, I guess, history of a thing. Yeah, it's, I mean, people read what they will read, but it's definitely got, I feel like, it hits so many different types of relationships and so much to say about them. <laughs> and it's it's amazing how much they fit into 39 episodes when they also had to pretend that they had, like, a plot going on through the whole thing to get to from the start of the story to the end. There's actually a funny uh, point about that. Um, from, like, the first season, especially at the very beginning of the series, the concept was very simple. It was going to be a show about a girl who wants to be a prince and, like, give her, like, this princess to save. A lot of what we see in the opening animation is what the, like, original concept for the show was. And it's it's definitely a lot less heady. <laughs> uh, it, it definitely expanded in this way that's very interesting and cool, but it, it definitely gives this idea that sort of like they are kind of like flying by the seat of their pants in this sort of thing. Like it's sort of disorganized, but ultimately comes together for a lot of very good like theming and stuff. Like thematically, it's very strong, whereas like actual narratively, it's maybe not quite what you might expect. Like, as you're, like, as the show's being produced and as you're watching the show, the themes are evolving and um, developing as you're watching it. And it's not only, like, a, like, conscious flow, but a lot of it's just, like, how things ended up and how things were, like, relating to people, like, working on the show's, like, lives at the time. So this is, like, very weird, very, like, organic evolution of, like, a lot of the stuff that's going on in a way that's 
coming together in sort of a messy way, but makes it as this more complete whole, almost like entirely by accident. Mm-hmm. And a little more kind of information on the back is that animation was done at JC staff, and this was sort of, I feel like, their first big thing that really hit, uh, not including like Slayers, which came into its own, and they've become a much bigger company since then. But um, Revolutionary Girl Lutena comes from a place where I feel like Ikuhara gets a lot of credit for what he's done for Direction, and f- fair enough, he did a lot of good work, but also he's put on this pedestal higher than maybe he should be because so much of Revolutionary Girl Lutena is about the collaboration between these five people and their different ideas, and as Ikuhara has made new projects, people are still excited for them, but maybe the writing has been weaker because they they don't have the same team of people working together. And we'll go into sort of like uh, examples of that later on. Um, this show, uh, like we said, very a little like narratively weird, maybe a little like inconsistent. So we're going to start breaking up the, uh, the discussions of stuff into arcs, uh, just to give kind of distinct ideas on the themes being built up there. And then maybe how they pay off later, but trying to keep it all separated and succinct before getting into sort of the bigger discussions of the themes, the things that are really exciting. And near the end, we'll start talking about the movie because the movie is um, kind of like the manga, its own version of the story. Uh, It's very compressed in terms of thematics and narrative. And while it does play into some of the stuff from the show, we're going to treat it sort of like its own thing and look at it a little differently because of that. I will say one thing about the movie right now. The movie is definitely a wild ride. <laughs> the, so Utena has its like twists and turns and it's very, um, it's very interesting that way. Adolescence of Utena is like that pushed to the limit and in the time span of an hour and a half. It is definitely a much wilder ride. <laughs> uh, I think, honestly, the movie, like... Oh, we'll get into the movie later, but... Yeah, let's... So, the first 13 episodes of Utena mark the, the student council saga, and that is sort of an introduction to the characters and sort of the, the main uh, plot device that will push... The, the narrative forward. And so we start off with a sort of like storybook presentation that uh, tells the story of a, of a young girl whose parents die in an accident and her, her great sadness at this. And um, during her, her sadness, this prince shows up and he sort of tells her to, to, to keep her nobility and to keep this, this ring with her um, to be able to help her find her way back to him once she's grown up and become noble. And she's so inspired by this that she decides that she wants to be a prince. So, yeah, so she, instead of becoming a princess to go with the prince, she decides to become her own prince uh, to inspire car- uh, people like he inspired her. And the <laughs> the first thing you mo- might notice is... The, the, like, super clamp, like, lanky designs on all these characters. It is, it is the most shoujo thing I feel like I've seen in a long time. But, uh, we're introduced to Utena, 
who sort of like in in a in a very like um genders uh in a very gendered sort of like boarding school she stands out because she is wearing this uh a, a male uniform instead of her her standard female uniform which looks nothing like the actual <laughs> uniforms the boys in the school wear <laughs> yeah and it's it's very princely but um still like fitting to her style yeah it's got like kind of the tight pants it's got kind of like the half skirt uh going on with it and like big shoulder pads but yeah, also it's like inverted colors from everything else. Like she is so standout and distinct from everyone else. Like everyone else is wearing a uh, seafoam green, like very like bland and like flat clothes. And but she's just got this whole elaborate getup. Yeah, this whole black and red thing. Like it's it's one of those jokes where it's like, oh, figure out who the main character is in this lineup. But um, so she's got uh, a friend named Wakapa who's very much like kind of in love with her very playful and excitable uh very much the every girl yeah very I, I, she she definitely stands as an every girl for the rest of the cast and so while talking with Wakaba one day she she stumbles on a scene of um this this student council member Sayonji and w- what appears to be his girlfriend uh Anthihima Mia and they're they're having this talk and like Sayonji, like, super casually just, like, slaps Anthe in the face and knocks her down. It's, like, this this big scene where Utena gets really um, incensed about this this treatment of, of someone who's supposed to be, like, important to him. And that's sort of where we're introduced to this, the Sayonji as, like, a bad person, because Wakaba is very much in love with him, but uh, he sort of sets up this whole, like, he takes one of the love letters Wakaba sent him and puts it up in like the middle of the court so that she is humiliated. And in order to protect Wakaba's honor, Utena decides that she is going to duel Sionji. And this has like huge implications beyond anything Utena could imagine. Uh, because not only that, but like, you know, she's trying to save uh, Anthe, who's like being mistreated by uh, Sionji too. Um, so she finds out that the ring this prince gave her is the ring that all the members of the student council wear, and that whenever a member of this, uh, ring club, um, challenges one another, they're challenging them to a duel. And, like, a a real-ass, like, sword duel. Like, they have this whole arena set up for it and everything with this just, like, huge, superimposing, like, waterfall-led gate that leads to this huge spiral staircase- and like there there's a there's a huge inverted castle like uh above the dueling arena it's this very like evocative sort of like fantastical setup and so um ultimately even though utena isn't uh, doesn't have like a proper sword she is able to defeat sayonji and unwittingly gets caught in sort of the 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 student council's game as it were for the rose bride which is what anthe's role is in the student council so as the rose bride she is engaged to anyone to the current champion of the duels so she now lives with utena and sort of like molds herself to to what utena desires out of her so this is um presents the season in these um twofold uh, aspects 
half of the uh, season is spent um, building Utena and Anthe's relationship as Utena is trying to grow close to Anthe and encourage her to be more of her own person. As well as during each uh, duelist we're introduced to, we see a glimpse into their life and what's driving their motivation to cause them to duel. Right. And so like, it's, it's a, it's a pretty good, um, just like one by one, we sort of like, we're introduced to like the whole student council, but then one by one, we get like a better look into them. And so we got Sionji's, who's this very like possessive character, very like quick to anger, but like very like deeply obsessed with Anthe. Following that, we, we are introduced to Mickey, who's sort of this like meek, um, very studious boy who ultimately like desires Anthe for the ability to sort of recapture these, these feelings of youth that he has lost since he has like drifted away from his sister. And then, uh, there's Yuri, who's this other very like princely woman. Um, in, in kind of a similar way to Utena. She's a bit different as, um, she's a lot, she's got almost got this like ice queen thing going on where she's like very silent and removed from not only like the other duelists, but the people in her life. Yeah. She's super like no nonsense. And a lot of what drives her character is this, this repression of herself and her emotions to continue to be this sort of like um ideal that she sees and uh she mostly desires anthe because they talk about how these these letters are coming to the student council from some uh ominous being called end of the world which is like dictating who duels when and kind of like trying to set forth this revolution of the world and um yuri's big motivation is to get that power and then prove that it's bullshit because she doesn't believe in miracles or anything like that. And then we're introduced to um, Nanami, who is the sister of the president of the uh, student council, uh, Toga. And Nanami is um, a capital B bitch. <laughs> she uh, is has like an almost obsessive love and desire for her brother. And she sees Utena and Anthe as, uh, as obstacles that she needs to overcome in order to kind of regain the attention of her brother. And so, like, all of, all of her episodes are, are more like, they're less dual focused and a lot more human, but also they're a lot goofier. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get back into that later, but like, She's also the most underhanded duelist because when she uh, loses the duel, she lunges at Utena with like two daggers. Right. It's yeah. She, yeah. She's she is the most underhanded, definitely like duelist that we see, and she's just like she's just absolutely nuts and like gets into these just absurd situations that really help break the tension. I feel of the shows. Which is nice because just like sometimes that 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 darkness that ends up coming is like very overbearing. It's nice to see it like starts, it starts very lightly. Like the first season's honestly like very lighthearted a bit from like some people being like slapped around and stuff. But the show, as you get further into it, gets a lot heavier and darker. And sometimes it's just nice to see like Nanami almost get into a fight with like a boxing kangaroo. <laughs> 
And then uh, finally, we reach the president of the student council, Toga. And Toga is like this super playboy, just uh, just surrounded by women who adore him and want his attention. And Toga is very interested in Utena and ultimately very interested in winning Anthe, but is interested in Utena for being this sort of like anomaly in their in their Rose Bride game. Like he very much dislikes that it's she's this girl who thinks she can be a prince. He wants to control her the way he controls the like other women in his life. He's like floozies and bitches that he's always like <laughs> discarding. Right. And it's it, that plays into sort of like his his main duels in this first season where he's like he's really trying to break Utena from trying to be anything different. And he's the only person who really has any significant leverage or chance of uh, winning because he's able to uh, manipulate uh, Utena to the point where her confidence is shaken and she loses a duel. Yeah, and at which point, she, like, Utena is able to fight back and sort of regain this, like, identity and princelyhood, but definitely falls into this, like, maybe Toga's right, maybe I'm not set up for this, I'm just going to be, like, a normal girl. Because Toga's, like, revealing to her that uh, Anthe was never the person she thought she was, as all the times she thought she was encouraging Anthe to make friends, Anthe was just enacting the wishes that she thought Utena wanted from her as the Rose Bride. Right, the the idea of the Rose Bride is that, like, she doesn't have really a self-identity, it's more like the, the person she's engaged to gives her the identity. And so, by the end of season one, Utena has kind of shaken Toga to a pretty significant degree and won back Anthe, which then leads into some just... Uh, some way crazier stories that only sort of tie in. We actually learn one last important thing about the first season from the uh, recap episode, where each we learn the name of each duel, and basically the um, duels align with the idea of uh, self-actualization as it's explored by uh, Carl Jung. And a lot of the narrative arc of the first season is... Uh, Utena um, overcoming and declaring herself and who she is and being able to gain the confidence to be who she is um, and project that into her life. Yeah, um, there's there's a there's an ominous character who talks about like how the the student council has lost hope, so they they can't revolutionize the world. But the self actualization that Utena's gone through with these duels that symbolize things like friendship and choice and conviction all play into this ability for uh, Utena to, to find the revolution of the world. And with that, we move into the next arc of the story. So uh, then we're brought into the, uh, the Black Rose saga, which takes up episodes 14 through 24, which now that kind of the student council has all been defeated, this introduces a new set of antagonists for Utena. And these are all people whose lives directly tie into the various uh, student council members. The student council members and Anthe, yeah. Uh, yes. They um, are all being uh, guided by a mysterious uh, figure who has... Uh, 
dubbed them the uh, Black Rose Duelists. Yeah, this is uh, this is the head of a, a group at the school named Mikage. Uh, it's a it's a seminar that he that he controls, and basically the the themes of these are like these sort of like hidden darker emotions in the hearts of these characters are brought up, which causes them to be able to pull swords from the student council members and use them to duel Utena in an attempt to kill Anthe, which they see as the way that they're going to sort of fix the the student council members and like the emotions uh, writing on that. Uh, there's actually a really interesting uh, thing going on here. As a lot of the elements of the show tie into Jungarian psychology, like uh, Jungarian psychology especially deals with uh, the concept of self-actualization, that Jung's process of that is what ties into the first season. This ties more into the uh, psychological concept of shadows in the repressed self, almost in a way similar to the video game Persona 4, Mm -hmm. where you have this figure who is releasing those emotions and those darker selves to enact their will upon the world. And there's surprisingly little in this arc that really ends up relating back to Utena. It's a lot more about the the, the secondary characters. Uh, yes, we have um, a lot going on here because on one hand we have the duels and the side characters being introduced. We have uh, Mikage and his backstory sort of unfolding as of like a side plot. And we are also introduced to Anthe's uh, brother and the temporary chairman of the school, Akio. Yes. And sort of, it's, it's, <laughs> there's a lot of setup, and, but there's also its own distinct story going on within it. There's a lot. And a lot of different characters are introduced as well, um, and a lot of, like, Sionji has disappeared for the better part of a while, but he comes back here as sort of the, uh, the impetus for other characters who end up dueling. But uh, we, we end up with duels with Mickey's sister. We have uh, Akio's fiancé, who never shows up after this. This is just to set up the fact that everyone wants to kill Anthe, this arc. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's actually really interesting, since this arc, I think, represents the least amount of character development for Anthe. The entire, like, kind of wrapping up point of, like, the first arc is very much about, like, who Anthe is on the outside. Mm-hmm. This arc, it's more about everyone's relation to Anthe, and we don't really learn a lot about her as a person until towards uh, the end, in a way that's still very confusing <laughs> to just the way that everything resolves. It sure is. So, real quickly... um, we, we end up with a duel with Wakaba as well, which is sort of like the big thing that Utena has to face is whether or not she can fight against her best friend. Utena also has a lot of um, subtlety to her development in the season as um, her biggest challenge to herself is represented through Mikage physically as he's sort of this, he sort of represents Utena's shadow himself. And mm-hmm. it also sort of represents this in uh, young psycho- psychology terms, uh, the anima, which young had uh, different psychological archetypes, which he characterized. The uh, anima was to a uh, female or feminine person to represent the 
uh, male archetype part of their personality that represents in their ba- brain, like the uh, animus would be the uh, inverse of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we... So, it turns out in the whole time that Mikage is a ghost, I guess? It's unclear. Um, Mikage is definitely, like, old and in some way, like, tied to the school based on his previous actions, which came down to sort of like this, his attempt to save a young boy who he became infatuated with while he was a professor at the school some odd years ago. We learn essentially two things in this, over the seasonal arc. Um, one being that uh, Mikage talks about these 100 Black Rose duelists, which uh, were enwrapped in this tragic series of duels, similar to the protagonists of uh, this ongoing series of events, as he fought for um, a small boy in a wheelchair who was known as the Rose Groom. Mm-hmm. And ultimately it turns out that the current Mikage, who's... I guess soul or whatever is is uh, tied to the school has been pushed by what appears to be Anthe doing some sort of like transformation to to I guess push forward the events of this arc and Akio seems to have some sort of like puppet master role at this point kind of coordinating all these different events to happen for the sake of Utena's development. There's also this implication that people within the bounds of the school don't age. Right, right. And that's why Mikage still looks so young. Um, both Mikage, but also um, I think someone talking to, um, I think Akio's fiance or something like that was the person to confirm this in a conversation with him, I believe. I think it was maybe Akio's Akio's fiance's mom? Something along those lines. There was some um, older woman who talks to Akio who mentions being younger the last time she saw him, but him not being younger. And that's true for Mikage as well. Mikage yes. also meets like a former, not flame, but like associate. Um, I mean, definitely not flame because I'm, I think Akio seduced his mom's, or his girlfriend, or his fiance's mom. There's so much stuff. And then, uh, yeah. <laughs> and Mikage, Mikage is definitely stuck on this boy named Mamiya who he had tried to save so many years ago. And kind of ultimately he's unable to overcome his memories and the way he's still stuck on his previous life, which leads to his eventual, like, defeat and I guess death. Uh, which also interestingly enough happens by the time that this arc resolves, uh, no one remembers that it happened. Yeah, no one remembers that he exists. Or that his building that he was using, uh, it just looks abandoned to everyone and they don't know what it was used for. Right, and it's, it's, it's a very weird thing that seems to imply that just like the entire history of those episodes disappeared, but like the effects of them have not because these characters have still changed, particularly the ones who have lost these duels, uh, in some ways for the better, in some ways for the worse. As well as this uh, implication that uh, Anthe was the Rose Groom and manipulating um, Mikage to some end. 
Right. That's this really big moment of, like, I guess, realization about who Anthe is, because we kind of see her as this person pulling strings to some extent, but we're not sure as to what reason or who Anthe is at all, because this isn't a part of the story where we're explicitly learning a lot about her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we reach the Akio Otori saga, which is episodes 25 through 33. And this is, this, this, it ends up being a lot of rematches against, uh, the student council for Utena. They actually, uh, rematch in pairs this time. Yes, so it, it sets up sort of these, like, each duelist will now have a bride, as it were. Um, and their relationship as a pair will be tested against Utena and Anthe's relationship. Yes, and the swords are now pulled from the duelist rather than the bride, um, which I guess is a, is a uh, you know, is some kind of metaphor for the, the, the strength of the self, because they're no longer using the swords of someone else, but of their own conviction. Because um, as the stories are evolving, all of the characters are going through their lives and trying to navigate these things and testing their wills and selves against Utenna's. And now, in this case, both Utenna and Anthe, as Anthe take, has more of an active role in the, this set of duels. Yes, um, so Akio has Utenna and Anthe move in with him to his uh, lofty estate. And we find that Akio and, like, Toga frequently go on these, like, car trips into, like, an abyss where they discuss sort of the end of the world uh, and, you know, this this revolution that they're working towards and how Utena plays into it. Uh, cars, cars become a very big deal now. <laughs> uh, this is also the part of the story where Anthony... Anthony starts developing as a person for real. In the first season, we learned that all of her development was essentially an act she put on to because she was reacting to what she interpreted as Utana's wishes. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we saw her take more of a background role. But in this place, she's uh, having these like real, almost like heartfelt, like or very heartfelt actually, conversations with Utana, and lots of scenes where as they're going to bed, they'll hold hands and talk. Mm-hmm. And the duels now take on a different tone because they've reached a different like level of the dueling arena thanks to an elevator that has appeared. And uh, here, there are a lot of cars just kind of stuck into the ground. <laughs> I don't know if there's a lot of symbolism to it, but certainly the, the theatrics play up as like the, the, the brides for each of the duelists kind of like drive around the perimeter and everyone who loses ends up in a car crash. Like there's this, I think what's mostly learned is that Ikuhara really likes cars, especially red ones. Yeah, like, kind of old red, like, convertibles. I think he actually drives a car like that, or did at the time of working on Utena. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, after we work our way through these sets of duels, we begin entering the final stretch of the series. Yeah, so Akio is taking a more active role in sort of, like, trying to stop Utena and like taking the student council members and sort of like, he says he's showing them the end of the world when he takes them on these car rides. 
at which point they become reinterested in dueling Utena with their brides and, ha- you know, fighting for this revolutionary power. Uh, we're introduced to this idea that I think there's an implication, one, that he's having sex with the duelists, maybe? Um, there's a lot of sexual imagery with Akio. Akio yes. has a lot of sex. And um, it's very clear that as this um, older person in power, he's very much abusing all these people around him in a smorgasbord of ways. And that ends up being a lot of the crux of like what we learn about um, Anthe is that she's just actively going through this sort of stuff on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're introduced to one more character, which is Ruka. Um, Ruka being uh, kind of Yuri's or Yuri's uh, like captain in the fencing team, and so many there are just so many extra additions to duels because there are all these characters that are now attached to others and make these brides, and it it, it is definitely like stated outright in a number of cases that the relationship between the duelist and their bride ultimately decides the outcome of their duel. Definitely. As I was um, saying before, it's very much testing their relationship against Anthe and Utenas. And a lot of what the episode is about is about the relationship of these two people each episode. Uh, Utena and Anthe are once again in more of a background role, although we do see more elements of them sort of uh, discussing and relating to each other things in their own lives. Mm-hmm. But again, we're introduced to this like idea that uh, they come to fight uh, Utena or Utena and Anthe in this case, and what almost ultimately ends up being like the winning factor is Utena's ability to just cut through everyone's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Uh, literally, yes. Uh, and it's it's it, it is it is interesting because it's sort of like a this is a finality of Utena sort of like destroying these people's, like, perceptions of Anthe and this power that they're desperately fighting for. And also through this whole arc, we we see Utena sort of, like, faltering in some ways against her, like, dedication to the prince because she's falling in love with Akio, even though Akio is already engaged to someone, and just, like, overcome with his charm she's charmed by him without the realization that he's manipulative and abusive. And that's what he's, you know, doing with her. He's wrapping her around him, her around his finger the way that he draws so many others in. Right. And Akio is very like blunt about it when talking to other people is like, this is specifically to be able to crush Utena later. Um, Which those other people that he's like, just talking about this to are almost to show his, Charmer, also people that he's like manipulating in similar ways. Mm-hmm. He manages to joke a lot about things so that like people um, who might have like questions and very much like gaslighting them in a way think that like everything's cool and that he's in on it. Like he jokes about like having a harem at one point, like that's what he's trying to do. But at the same time, it's like very much not a joke because he's very much like abusing and hurting all these people. Right. It's it's very uh, real as well. And through this whole thing, we get this, hints is not the right word, we are given these very direct scenes about how Akio and Anthea's relationship is, like, very sexual. And there's also something, like, even more going on with it, with the same sort of, like, 
abuse that he shows other characters. And at the same time, Akio is also developing a sexual relationship with Utena. Again, further pushing the sort of like relationship and breaking the boundaries that eventually he's going to uh, manipulate and take advantage of. And that a lot of all these elements coming together is what makes up the uh, final arc of the series. The Apocalypse Saga. (laughs) Uh, Yes, the Apocalypse Saga is very much um, these layers of dramatic irony of characters who know what's going on, characters who don't know what's going on. Ultimately, Utena, out of all the cast, is the person most in the dark about everything. Yes. Uh, She does not become privy to everything until maybe the last two episodes. Um, Yes, even... Uh, Nanami, who uh, up until this like last season or so has been a very goofy joke character, ends up having a lot more <laughs> knowledge about what's going on than she does. Yes. And so for episodes 34 through 39, we have our final arc, which is sort of the day of revolution is approaching. Um, we have what is announced as the final duel between Utena and Toga, as Toga kind of makes these realizations that he he has changed a lot and has these very real feelings for Utena and wants to protect her, and does try to warn her about Akio and Anthe being maybe not what she believes them to be. So he challenges Utena with his bride, Sionji. Right, who, uh, they're, they're extremely, like, bro, and they've been friends since kids, so, you know, they... They are a particularly strong uh, duo. And they also have a sick motorcycle during this duel. <laughs> I always forget about all the different car stuff and the stuff with the desks that's going on during these duels. Yeah, yeah so in this one in particular, it takes advantage of the cars and everything. Like, uh, Toga and Sayuji try to ram a car into Utena, and then when she cuts it in half, it turns out that they're standing on a motorcycle with the sword at the ready to, like, stab them as they do a drive-by. It's 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 very like theatrical and goofy, but in a very like strongly dramatic way, which sums up the series pretty well. Yes, and so we end up at this this final duel, and in between this, we have like Anthony and Utena opening up to each other about sort of like both of them started this friendship with sort of like very selfish goals, but they've come to really like care about each other. And ultimately, this comes down to a duel between Utena and Akio, where Utena learns uh, Actually, there's a everything. bit of build-up before okay. this. Okay. Before this, we have, um, like I said, there's like the very like layers of uh, dramatic irony going on, as Nanami is aware of the relationship between Akio and Anthe. Uh, Utena isn't as Utena's being seduced by uh, Akio, Anthe is witnessing this, but also remaining in her role as bride. She's not uh, interfering with this. She's not informing Utena of what's happening. And you almost see this like kind of silent um, resentment and betrayal that she feels towards Utena falling for him in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. They, they both have some animosity there. Uh, because of their relationships, because Utena does at some point make a realization about their relationship. And there's very much, um, even before the final duel, Anthe is the only person who knows everything that's going on, and 
she doesn't want it to happen. While she is feeling this animosity, there's a point where uh, she's talking with Utena and saying, like, um, in ten years we should have uh, tea again, and um, Anthe's just, like, coyly joking, like, oh, I've poisoned yours, and Utena um, jokes back, oh, well, I've poisoned yours too, but there's this irony in it, in that Anthe is saying that out of this spite, she didn't poison it, but she's still very, like, upset at Utena in these ways. Mm-hmm. And Utena's just um, playfully joking because she very truly enjoys Anthe's company. But right. this leads to this point where Anthe knows how the last duel is supposed to go. Anthe does not want to participate in the duel. She doesn't want any harm or anything bad to happen to Utena. So she's trying to jump off a building. And uh, Utena's very much stopping here, and there's very much this, like, big emotional, like, breakthrough between the two characters that we don't really see at any point of the series, even as they're getting closer. hmm And this is where they kind of both admit to each other these, like, falsities that they've had within their relationship and the ways that that's changed as they really got to know each other. Like, Anthony definitely says that there's some, like, manipulation on her part in the way that their relationship built, and Utena has this moment where she's like, I kind of did this because it made me feel good. Like saving you was like sort of a, a a boost to my, you know, a boost to me to try to make me look good. Utena very much ended up projecting on Anthe in the way that everyone else did in a lot of ways. Right. And so this ends up leading into the final duel uh, between Akio and Utena as sort of like more details about the relationship between Akio and Utena and Akio and Anthe come to light. Uh, this is also the part where we're introduced to the end of the world. The end of the world being Akio himself. And the fact that it turns out that the whole elaborate battlefield under this hanging upside-down castle where the duels used to take place uh, turned out to be caused by a uh, constellation pro- projector. Yeah, a planetarium sort of thing that he has set up. So... Akio, since the very beginning, has been setting up these falsities and this, like, this whole, like, grandiose thing just because he's manipulating everyone to uh, fall into line with what he wants to do. And to get into what he wants and um, who uh, Anthe is, and while we'll explore this much later, we're very much introduced to um, a myth early on in this season that's done via the uh, Shadow Girls, who we haven't spoken about yet, but essentially in every episode they appear as this uh, short kind of gaggish shadow play, um, which is a play using shadows. Yeah, and it's like a dis- it's sort of a distillation of every episode's themes. And in very early on in the final season, they essentially um, relate the uh, backstory for the Rose Bride and the uh, missing prince, Dios, uh, through this shadow play. Um, As we learn this very simple um, story in a lot of ways about a girl who couldn't save her brother, this prince, who was being worn out from having to save maidens every day. And she just wanted attention from him, but couldn't get it because he wasn't, she couldn't be a, like, princess being his sister and everything. So she locked him away from the world very much through related through this story that we hear running throughout the series about this idea of the Prince Dios being sailed 
sealed away in the Castle of Eternity that hangs upside down over the Duelist Arena. And there's even twists on that because that's not the full version of the story. And as we get into the ending and the the final duel, we uh, learn a lot more elements of uh, how this relates to Anthe and Akio. Yeah, and uh, so Akio was Dios at a time. He was the prince who was saving all of these maidens. Akio has a very threefold persona in that he's Akio, Dios, and the figure known as the end of the world. Yes, and so previously as Dios, he was saving all these maidens and was being worn out by it. He just couldn't take all of the work being loaded in on him because he was like the only prince. So Anthe, the sister, the became uh, the Rose Bride by be, um, saying that she has sealed him away and that he will not protect anyone anymore, and thus taking on all of the responsibility in a way, like she is stabbed by all the swords that would be used to duel against Dios. And this is a constant imagery used throughout the series, well, throughout the end of the series. She's stabbed by what's referred to as the Swords of Hate, which is basically this physical manifestation of the world's spite for taking away this uh, god figure um, prince from it. Right. And this god figure who is very much human, and that's why, you know, she felt the need to protect him. And so Dios, in his inability to save this girl, kind of becomes Akio and has put all of this stuff into motion in the hopes of being able to save her. Uh, And to regain his princely self, which he very much misses. Yes. Um, Because he no longer sees himself as a prince because of his inability to have saved Anthe. And in being this without his uh, princeliness, he sort of became this monster. Yes, this this manipulative person. So he has a duel with Utena, where Anthe turns out to, I guess, through the manipulation of Akio again, uh, ends up stabbing Utena and kind of forcing her to lose the duel. And the door to the end of the world where they can achieve revolution is revealed. Akio takes Utena's sword, believing it to be powerful enough to break through the barriers that allow him to open the door to the revolution. Uh, and this part's pretty uh, great, because he basically just sticks it a few times, throws the sword away, and then chills with the martini. Yeah, he's like, oh, well, it, it, the, the sword like breaks, and he's like, well, that didn't work. Uh, I guess I'm just gonna wait. And Utena, through like this, this resolve to be... The prince, because through this whole thing, Akio has sort of been trying to mold her to become a princess and sort of to become the, you know, uh, Akio's real, like, bride and, like, stuff like that. There's this implication that if Akio wanted to get his uh, power back, he would have needed to shed a single tear for Anthe in her state, uh, in her internal punishment as uh, the Rose Bride receiving the Swords of Hate from the world. That's all it would have took. But instead, he set up this whole cycle of duels, which she willingly uh, partaked in, in this sort of um, Stockholm-y, like, way bound to him. It's very, again, very gross, but she can't really pull herself away from him. And so Utena, in her true, honest desires to save Anthe, is able to open up the door to the revolution, behind which is a coffin 
uh, with Anthe inside of it, which is sort of this other reoccurring motif of like being trapped, uh, either through the coffin or through what the, uh, the, the student council is referred to as like the shell of the world that they need to crack. There's very much this implication that everyone in the world is trapped. Sometimes we see this physically through characters in coffins. There's a reoccurring image of uh, Utena after the death of her parents lying in a coffin. Um, but we also see this within the lives of the duelists as they are trapped by the circumstances of the people in their life and how they're drawn by people who they um, can't get to be what they want to them. Right. It's very much about kind of not being able to to let go and move forward. And so uh, Utena opens this door, opens the coffin door, and Anthe is uh, freed of her role as the Rose Bride, thanks to this being able to break open from her coffin. Anthe is freed in a sense, since this vulnerable in herself that was like kind of hiding in the coffin is um, able to reach out to Utena, but at the same time, this world around them is crumbling, and it's implied that this um, whole cycle is starting again. So Utena isn't the one necessarily to save uh, Anthe, as she's still stuck in this coffin. So we return to the new school year, where we see lots of um, familiar faces as we see the student council going about their lives, and we find out that Utena has disappeared. She's just not at school, there's this implication maybe she left, maybe she died. Oh, and so, like, uh, they, they've they talked about this before with, like, kind of forgetting that people are there. We saw it with Mikage. We see it a little bit in a discussion going on during the final duel with the student council. But, like, she is disappearing from the memories of, these, uh, of the people at school as they m- move forward. And we see something that's very um, strange. We see this scene of Akio in his office talking about, okay... We'll need to set up the duels again. I mean, they failed every time so far. This implication that they've just been going on for years. But maybe it'll work next time. And he's tra- discussing these details with uh, Anthe. Anthe, who for the first time ever proclaims that she's not going to partake in them, that she's going to look for Utena. Yes, and leaves Akio there, sort of like sputtering, not understanding why Anthe is suddenly like pushing away. But she has been sort of freed from the the chains that have bound her to the role as the Rose Bride. There's this implication that Utena didn't save her, but she did touch her heart enough to allow her to break out of the circumstances of her life um, to find someone she cares about. Yeah, and so she leaves the school to find Utena and to save Utena, at which point the credits roll. Um, so- Boy, howdy! <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's sort of the, the the plot of the show. But now that we're into the discussion section, we're going to talk about sort of, I think, the things that maybe ring a little more true than the actual, like, structure of the show. The, the thematic storytelling that's going on. Uh, there's a lot to take in as we look at these uh, different themes. Um, I think the most important like aspect of it is that all of this narrative is very much wrapped around this concept of um, fairy tales and the roles of the characters in fairy tales. Mm-hmm. 
Um, we see this very late in this... Well, we see this twofold, actually. We see this one in the opening narration as it presents the story of Utena as the girl who wants to be a prince. And we also see this towards the end and as we see the shadow play about the Rose Bride and the origin of the Rose Bride. Mm-hmm. With um, Utena, there's very much this question of, as a girl, can she be a prince? And what does it mean to be a prince? As we see several characters uh, who, other than Utena, who are all attributed princely aspects, Toga and uh, Akio slash Dios being like the main kind of uh, set of characters like that. And we almost get this idea that everyone has their own prince in a way, but the idea of whether a prince is a good ideal to actually live up to. And almost inconclusively, the answer is no, do not be a prince. <laughs> and, and, it, and it plays with like what a prince means to different people. Because some of it's, some of it's a, a role of being saved by this person and being swept away. And some of it's a little more grounded and sort of like more just like uh, emotional sort of like baggage. There's there's this ongoing idea that looking to someone as a prince or as a savior will open up a window for them to take advantage of you that is often used by people. Um, Sayanji uses... Not Sayanji. Um, Toga uses his image as a prince very much to get people to do what he wants. And we see a lot of that in Akio as well, as Toga's more of this direct schemer, whereas Akio is more of this um, subtle person using his uh, charisma mixed with his ga- like gaslighting and other abusive tactics to not even let people in that there's just something going on here. Whereas people generally get that Toga is this not a good guy, but he's still constantly Hot. around people. Yeah, and that. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of sort of like looking at the characters that these people bring up as like princely and sort of deconstructing what it, about it, their characters make them look that way and the sort of like hidden intentions underneath. Through the... um like story of uh, the Rose Bride, we're introduced to this idea that even if someone was truly princely, their own princely nature and their own uh, empathy and goodwill would be taken advantage of by other people and just used up to the point of exhaustion and self-disrepair, which we see through the projections of uh, Dios, since Dios is seen as a separate character than Akio, who's seen as him as a true prince, who we see both aspects of the characters and both are designed differently, but similarly, I think during the first recap episode, we have those two aspects talking to each other. Yes, we see Akio sort of like speaking to this like frozen uh, Dios about being able to return Dios to the world. Like, very much Akio seems disconnected from his previous life um, in, like, such a profound way. Yet yeah, we see, I think, in a lot of ways that, like, Dios truly was a prince and truly was a good-willed person, and in a lot of ways that was the problem for him in the first place. 
And it, it's, it's, it's just about looking at sort of the ways these roles change as like characters, maybe not always corrupt, but be, but you know, the, these other outside influences end up affecting them. Uh, we see this a lot in Anthe too, who, given her role in the series, you know, you're looking at her and you're thinking like, oh, since Utana is presenting herself as this prince, this must be the maiden she saves, the damsel in distress, the princess. Mm-hmm. But we're presented um, to a separate way of looking at this through the um, story of the Rose Bride presented towards the end of the series. There's this idea that Anthe could never truly become a princess because um, she was the prince's sister. And in the fairy tale language, if you can't become a princess and you can't be a prince because you're a woman, then you become a witch and you are the manipulative magic figure of a story, right? Right. It turns you sinister because through that whole play, it's very much like, oh, I was pretending to be your sister, but I'm this evil witch who's going to lock you away. Like, there, it becomes this ulterior motive. There's this implication um, that kind of ties into the, like, dynamics of abuse going on and the cycles of abuse that go on in the series, that when people have um, power and an, an autonomy uh, taken from them, in order to just deal and comprehend and handle their lives, they have to gain power through other means, which... Um, come across as uh, more subtle or sneaky underhand or manipulative um, because the only way Anthe's able to get anything she wants out of her life is just through um, these sort of like mind games that she's playing with people that we don't really see through until the end of the series because these are in a lot of ways like um, her survival mechanics. Mm -hmm. And even um, through Dios who technically is the role of the prince, we see him take more of the role as the damsel in distress because we learn early on in the series that uh, in the Castle of Eternity that hangs upside down over the uh, duelist arena, that's where Dios and the power of eternity lies. Uh, and Dios is very much the princely aspect of uh, Akio is held captive there. And that's where he was sealed away by um, Anthe. And as it turns out, that whole thing's an illusion, like this this thing to be found isn't real. Everyone's been chasing after this thing that ultimately just doesn't exist. Yeah, they're chasing after this thing that doesn't exist. A lot of the characters' roles to each other are based solely on projection. Um, everyone's projecting what they want someone to be onto someone else, or what they want to get out of something. Like, it's seen not only with people, but with the power of eternity. Everyone has their own idea of what it is and what it will do for them and how it will change them. In when in uh, Inverse, we only the only, like, real strength we see a person gain is Utena as she becomes more sure of herself, more complete in her identity, and more self-actualized as these uh, duels challenge her as a person and who she is. Yes. Um, for... Each of the duelists, in a lot of way, their um, relationship with these duels represents um, a failure of that on their end. Except for Jury, I want to say, whose problems might lie elsewhere symbolically. They they lie in a, a lot of places. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, well, Yuri's is, I feel, different from the others. Well, Yuri's is different because 
symbolically, like, she never loses a duel to Utena. I mean, she does lose the duels, but it's always due to circumstances in the duel, which uh, manifests as, like, reflections of her life. Like, um, she doesn't believe in the power of miracles, and she's grown to hate it due to these, like, figures in her life, and she wants to hold the power to be able to crush that sort of concept in a lot of ways. Yet, she loses the first duel to um, a coincidence due to a miracle. Yeah, literally a miracle, because uh, throughout this whole thing, a lot of why Utena wins the duels is she is sort of filled with the power of Dios that comes down from the inverted castle. Um, no, like, even uh, better, in Yuri's first duel, a sword goes flying into the air, and it lands Oh, that's right, it lands right down on her rose. <laughs> yes. Right. And I believe in the another duel, like, there's interference, like, there's, like, some sort of, like, direct interference from, like, uh, another person in her life that causes her to lose it, or, like, she remembers them, or something like that. But, like, there's very much this idea that she is very skilled and self-assured, but blinded by her convictions. Mm-hmm. Even though she does end up being stuck in a lot of these um, cycles of uh, projection that a lot of the other casts are stuck into as she wants things out of other characters in her story that she can't get and they all want things from different people. And that plays into sort of this, uh, this, um, the, the eternity that everyone's searching for. Uh, not only do they talk about the, the ability to create these miracles with the revolutionizing the world, but that they're, they're searching for something that is eternal at the same time. You know, something, some, something in their lives that they feel is lacking that they, that they desire. There's very much this question, the literal question of, What's an eternal thing? What is something that can last forever? Is it love? Is it miracles? Is it all sorts of things that they're fulfilling this question with? And they think if they have this power that they'll have something in their life truly lasting. But the answer to this is, I feel, like revealed early in the final season, but is also a very stinging and harsh realization. We're introduced to Anthe in the Swords of Hate, as um, Utena is experiencing memories from her past, which is the true reason she wants to be a prince, is not because she was inspired by a prince, it was because she was shown Anthe's punishment uh, as the Rose Bride, the Swords of Hate. Which is an eternal thing, or is presented as an eternal thing. Um, The, similar to how, Akio shows everyone something eternal in the uh, the car rides. The, in the Akio and the car, car ride uh, saga, Utena was shown by Dios something eternal, and what she was shown was Anthe with the swords of hate stabbing her. So there's this implication that the only thing eternal is suffering, mm-hmm. um, which ties into how everyone is caught within these cycles of their own lives that they can't pull away from. And the only, like, real way that we're able to see someone pull away from it is not due to being saved, but due to someone being there and truly caring for them as a person enough for them to want to pull themselves out of the situation for that person. It's... I think it's unclear when, um... 
uh, Akio is showing them something internal, if he's also showing them the almost separately removed aspect of Anthe as the Rose Bride being stabbed by the Swords of Hate. Or if it's like an illusion of whatever they ultimately desire. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it is left ambiguous, I, I assume intentionally. And so it, it's difficult to say, but I think given what he's done so far, it is, it would be more manipulative to show them what they desire as the impetus for them to refight, uh, Utena. Yeah, that's very fitting. I mean, also, I think part of it is just like getting to ride Akio's hot whip. <laughs> and boy, do a lot of characters. <laughs> well, um, I, I always love how Akio uh, rides on the hood of the car shirtless while the car is just self-driving, I guess. Right. So, uh, so at the end of each of these car rides, he flips from the driver's seat onto the front of the car and has this sort of like come hither pose. As it as it drives into the the foreground, there there are two rules for being either male or a prince in Utena. I guess more of just being male and a prince in Utena because this doesn't happen to Utena as much. But it's having long hair and having your shirt open at all times or open at any time. Right. By in the in the saga where Akio starts to sort of reveal himself, lot more like. Toga having his shirt off, Sionji joins in, and they all do these, like, pose-offs, too. It's very, like, pin-up sort of stuff. No, they literally have a uh, topless photo shoot at one point. Like, I think they have multiple cameras. Yes, yeah. They have multiple, like, Akio is taking pictures of, like, Sionji and Toga on top of the car, doing these sexy poses. You see a lot of Toga and Akio, like, um, shirts open writhing on a bed together as they discuss these refights. Like, there's so much, like, raw male sexuality in this show. So Akio is kind of gross. I think that's no, what we've been getting No, he's super gross. <laughs> he's yeah, super um, gross. Grosser than Toga, and Toga's pretty gross. Uh, Toga, even if he doesn't stop being gross. There's a lot going on with Toga under the surface that we'll get like more into later. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, as far as going on to other like, um, themes of the show, there are a lot of them all kind of like blur into each other. Obviously. Um, we were talking about how, um, um, the Power of Eternity actually ties into another thing, because um, it's really unclear to everyone what they're getting out of these duels. There's this idea that they're also getting the power to revolutionize the world and to crack the shell of the world. And no one really knows what that is. And even towards the end of the series, when they're all um, playing badminton together, I want to say, they're just like, what do you think it is? And uh, you kind of just like, kind of like, I don't know. Um, I'm cool with whatever. Um, but very much, the, I think the real implication of the story is that the term world, it doesn't refer to the literal world, it's more of a metaphor for the self, and it's yeah. very much about being able to wrest the, you know, power to self-actualize and own yourself as a person, which in a lot of ways all of the cast members other than Yutena fail to do. For Yutena and Anthe. Like, the. Uh... Sayonji and Toga talk about it near the end as, like, this idea of 
perhaps we're all trapped in our own personal coffins, and they and you know the student council has always been about if you you will die if you can't crack the world shell, and it's all about sort of like self actualization and kind of like a, an acceptance of the self, um, both good and bad parts, and kind of in in some ways it also ties into the themes of like adolescence and being able to like move forward in life from uh, childhood to adulthood. Yeah, there's very much about, like, the moving on. There's also about, like, how influential people, like, around you as you're, like, growing up are, and how that cannot be a great thing. Right. You can hold on to those relationships too tightly. Um, or even then they might not be healthy in the first place and have all sorts of issues to rise there. Right. That they hold you back in one way or another. Yeah. Uh, there's very much this implication of like, no matter like where you are in life of being held back by different people around you. Mm-hmm. And I think um, one of the more um, interesting elements of the series to me, again, as like this um, queer Midwestern chick um, is the, how the show plays with uh, sexuality and, uh, gender a lot even yes uh there's a lot of that and and i mean even most obviously it's you know the role of a prince as utena tries to be a prince and so many people fight against this idea of her breaking this particular boundary and trying to fit her into the role of a princess something they find more proper uh the teachers do it akio does it toga does it even Anthe does it near the end where it's like, hey, you can't be my prince, so I'm stabbing you right now to end the duel with you and Akio. Um, there's this very much, like you said, idea of everyone aspiring to be a prince, but no one really able to fulfill those shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, um, towards the end, like, we see, like, in like, the last shots, like, Utena feeling like she's failed as a prince um, because this whole world's crumbling around her. There's very much this idea, it's even presented in, like, the movie a little bit, that the idea of being a prince at all to anyone is just a harmful concept. Um, but the way it does pre- present itself through the characters ends up being, like, this very much uh, gendered thing as it's, like, debating as to what people could or should be. And um, seeing that through Utena as this declaration of self that she is a prince, and it's that kind of sort of ability of being able to clearly see yourself and project that that allows her to move through anything as far as she does is because of this um, mastering herself in that way. And like acknowledge and being able to uh, like acknowledge like her feelings for Anthe as they're growing cro- closer and stuff like that is like also a very big part of her being able to um, self-actualize and become this more full person by, you know, claiming yourself. And I've always really thought that was, like, a cool thing that you don't really see in a lot of other places. Mm-hmm. It definitely questions a lot of roles that are set up, uh, particularly in, like, shoujo, um, uh, shoujo anime and manga. It, 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 not only in how they present these characters, but also in their relationships uh, with other people, and in particular when it comes to sort of, like, the the romantic relationships that it sets up. Past that, everything is, like, also, like, almost, like, entirely, like, fluid with the characters. Like, they're definitely, like, this, these more, like, overt, like, um, straight, like, relationships with all the characters, as we, like, um, see Toga going after, um, Utena, we see, 
like Sayanji and Wakaba and um, stuff like that. We see Mickey's interest in uh, Anthe growing. Uh, Kozue with Mickey. Yeah. And then, but we also, on other hands, like, have this very, like, fluidity to it as we see, like, um, like the closeness of, like, Toga and Sayanji's, like, friendship. And so, and then Toga and Akio. Yeah, yeah, Akio has this very... He uses those elements as this way of, like, controlling everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, we see um, a lot more, like, um, lesbian aspects in uh, Yuri as... There's very much this question of, like, who she's pining for, and uh, the people involved in that story um, trying to figure it out um, as she, like, keeps this locket um, that she wears everywhere with a picture of the person she cares most about, but hides what's in that. Yeah, like, it's presented in some ways like a, a twist that it turns out that in her previous life, it wasn't that a girl stole a boy away from her, it's that the girl went out with a boy instead of her, and she comes off as, like, very clearly having this, um, you know, like, romantic desire for this this girl Shiori. And that ends up being, like, um, a lot of the major, like, cycle of her arc is that she's in love and very much cares about this person who is disgusted by and hates her. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of making her, you know, uh, have similar arcs to everyone else where everyone is just pining for someone who does not want to fulfill whatever area that they want fulfilled by that person. Right. And like, there's Mikage and um, Mimi, uh, Mamiya, which can be read as like a romantic thing, but is definitely like a strong bond between two men. And then there's even the relationships between uh, familial members. Uh, was Mia the um, rose groom? Yes, that's the rose groom. Okay. Um, but yes, there's also the uh, familial aspect, because then you have um, the power dynamic and abuse of uh, Akio to Anthe. You have... Um, oh, The very childish sort of... Um, infatuation between or from Nanami to uh, Toga. You also have um, Mickey's sister and her feelings towards him um, as um, she's very direct and teasing but all he wants is the like friendship they used to have and then like later he wants um, Anthe? Yes. Because he sees Old Kozue and Anthe, yeah. And there's just a lot of playing into relationships of where sort of, like, lines cross. And that's a lot of where the... Where a lot of this, like, drama happens and a lot of these um, these conflicts happen is in this desire to cross these relationship boundaries and what it takes to sort of, like, overpower someone else in order to make these relationships come true. There, it, it definitely brings up a lot of, like, questions about, like, what exactly a person's feelings are, because feelings themselves, just in general, are messy things, and uh, like everything else in this show, it's a mess. Um, but then again, I've um, said before that Utena definitely came together as a mess, and just everything managed to work out because of that.
uh, we've spoken so much about all these uh, cycles that people are trapped in. Uh, maybe you want to get more into introductions of these running character arcs. Yeah, so let's let's talk about some of these characters and sort of what they what they represent and the the, the stories that they tell. And first up, we have Sionji, the the first uh, duelist against Utena. And Sionji has this very um, abusive and like uh, overpowering uh, relationship with Anthe that really shows Sionji's um, view of her as like a possession. Uh, more so than other characters, it's very much this, because she is engaged to me, I own her, you know, she is mine. Uh, and it's unfortunate because anyone who gets wrapped up in Soji very much gets pulled into that in a lot of ways. Yes, because then um, later on when Sionji sort of like breaks the rules of the dueling and is like kicked out for a while, he takes uh, refuge in Wakaba's home because Wakaba still has this huge crush on Sionji, even though he humiliated her in public. Um, and Wakaba ends up fighting Utena because she knows that as soon as Sionji is reinstated in the school, he won't remember her at all. Sionji will go back to pining after Anthe. And so Wakaba's desire to sort of like have full control over Sionji is is to kill Anthe um, during the Black Rose arc. Wakaba's is very much... Um, I honestly like think she's one of the most, like, more like more tragic characters, but in like a very like soft way, just because she's very much like the every girl. She's this cheery best friend who, in a lot of ways, just calls like Utena, um, her girlfriend, as like a teasing like friendly thing, which is in a, it's in a very like contrast to the rest of the cast in the way that she um, presents things. Yeah, because it's it's her her desires just come from the fact that she knows that she's not special and not everyone can be special and that's sort of like a bit of what her arc's about and so she she sees this as the only way to keep Sionji with her this you know and it's it's it is tragic but also plays into sort of these not being able to you know not being able to let go of these internal desires it's it's through her need to be special and through her um like, she wants to be special, but she doesn't understand of the people that she considers special, of uh, why she sees them that way, why they feel so elevated, what these elements of their own lives that, like, kind of trap these and these, their cycles with each other are, because her life, as we, like, see in a lot of ways, that isn't very complicated, because she's just, like, living this kind of sweet, nice life. Like, one of her biggest issues ends up being a boy who likes her from her childhood and she just doesn't realize it. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, uh, sound she appears and because of her need to keep him around to feel wanted and needed and useful as he's relying on her, she's finding more ways to keep him around. And that's honestly making her more of someone like him. Mm-hmm. The, this idea that, she is going to basically own him and kind of dictate how he turns out because she can't let him leave. And it's almost really, really sad because she never feels wanted by any aspect of her life that she's just taking these actions and not realizing, like, how harmful they are. Though, uh, to be fair, like, a lot of, like, what we see of her, like, motives comes after, like, um, 
she's been magically altered at the Black Rose seminar. Mm-hmm. So then we also have uh, Yuri, who we've talked about sort of the the tragic romance in her life, and the the way she she deals with this is very it's it's very much a repression of her feelings. She does not reveal herself to others in an attempt to sort of like keep her defenses up and stay protect uh, protected from other people because other people have hurt her in the past. Specifically, Shiori, her crush. She's very specifically closed off herself. Um, there's this lot of dramatic irony as we see these three uh, players in her set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, which are her, her um, friend and cross, Shiori, and then Shiori's crush, Ruka, who Shiori thinks that she had a crush on, which is why she started dating him. Right, and Ruka is also, like, basically, like, uh, Yuri's um, better in terms of, like, fencing. Like, he was the previous fencing captain at the school before he got sick and had to leave. And so there's this weird triangle relationship there where Ruka, in a lot of ways, takes advantage of Shiori. Shiori thinks she's taking advantage of Ruka, and Yuri just wants Shiori not to be hurt. Um, yeah, there's... Um, I think Yuri's one of the more interesting um, duelists to me personally, um, other than just um, seeing this like kind of like queer drama like relate itself through these characters, but also due to the fact that um, she's not really like taking an active role in trying to get what she wants. She's just trying to keep like a very simple thing is that she just wants like her crush to be happy. Like she doesn't really like have a lot of expectations as to where that's going to go. Right. And sort of, like, by the end of this whole arc, it turns out that Ruka basically, like, in his last couple days at the school, like, basically killed himself in order to play this role in Yuri and Shiori's lives one last time. Like, there's a there's a whole meaning behind his sort of, like, reappearance and eventual death, because he's, like, worked himself um, so hard in, like, getting them to participate in these duels and everything. And this kind of leaves um, both of them in this, this weird place as they're sort of bound to each other just by knowing each other, but also had this resentment growing towards each other. Right. Which is essentially their sort of um, loop. Uh, we don't end up actually seeing a lot of these... Um, character stories resolve in any any sort of um, cathartic way is kind of a matter of point is that they can't break themselves out of these cycles. We we see them somewhat changed, but they still can't really overcome that. Yeah, these characters are ultimately left in the place that they started. Uh, There is some change as um, everyone by the end of their own arcs uh, has this respect for Utena and how she's able to own her life. But even in that scene where we see them talking about that and playing uh, badminton, we see the shadows of their past just literally looming in the background, watching them silently. Yeah. So then we have uh, Mickey, who Mickey just has a complicated relationship with his sister because they used to play piano together and used to be sort of like inseparable in that way. And due to Mickey getting sick and being unable to perform a concert uh, together, 
Kozue's his sister sort of like distanced herself from him and he's been trying to recapture that that same relationship since this whole time while Kozue is like becoming up you know becoming sort of like a a loose woman and having these the, the a, a similar but distinct sort of like desire for a relationship with Mickey and i think it's implied or said in a lot of ways that she's like kind of acting out to to get his attention yeah as i say even if that's not not necessarily the um best like implication in terms of uh, sexuality and stuff like that but like, then again a lot of the sexuality presented in this show is through the more uh, like messy and harmful aspects of it than it is anything remotely healthy yeah and it might not even be like um wholly incestuous and maybe just sort of the thing where it's like i just desire dete- uh, attention from this person so i'm acting out and doing these dangerous things for the sake of this one person like you know, paying attention to me and taking care of me. Like, there's very much this implication towards the um, end of the world arc where she's like, oh, well, if you're so interested in Anthe, what if I seduced Anthe? Mm-hmm. It's a lot of just trying to get under his skin. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mickey's resolution is just realizing by the end that he just can't recapture this relationship that he desires. There's, there's no going back. Yeah, that you have to always, you know, keep moving forward and, like, advancing. Like, uh, in that sense, he actually does get more of a resolution as he's able to actually have a realization about himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that being, you know, what allows him to come to terms with and, like, respect Utena a lot more. Yeah. Like, I think we even um, see this, and I could be reading too much into this, because uh, Mickey, you see, has a stopwatch that he constantly uh, pulls out and clicks. And it's very unclear why Ikuhara says that it contains the secrets of the universe. I'm not sure I'm sold on that. You could take it in some cases like he's taking the minutes of the the student council stuff. But he also does it when, like, grading tests and just, like, out while he's... He's, like, running a stopwatch waiting to see how long it takes Anthe to meet up with him at one point. Like, there's, there's there's this clear symbolism in this stopwatch that hasn't, you know... Uh, Ikohara is intentionally very, um, so like, uh, going back to the kind of the comparison with, with, uh, Hideaki Anno, Anno is like constantly changing his opinion on what certain symbols mean. Ikohara is intentionally like kind of pushes away any idea that he wants to talk about what those themes mean. And he's more about the, the interpretation of the viewer. Ikohara not only like, is big on the interpretation of the viewer. He just has a lot of fun seeing people struggling to, like, <laughs> guess what he means. Like, that part of the, like, weirder aspects of the movie, like, he really wants to, like, tell people because he's, like, giggling with this almost, like, excitement towards, like, what he's done. At the same time, he refuses to tell anyone because he just likes to see people, like, struggle with this confusion. Yeah, he's happy. He He's one of those creators that's like, whatever you took away from it, you took away from it. And that's the interpretation. But he clearly has his own ideas of what these things mean. So um, on with like Mickey's uh, stopwatch. Um, and like, I, I, as we were saying, Mickey's a lot younger and a lot more immature and naive than the other cast members. So I think through the conclusion of the series, we actually see 
see him passing on his stopwatch to someone else and like teaching him how to use it. Yeah, he teaches Suabuki, um, sort of like uh, Nanami's like middle school servant how to use the stopwatch. And it's just like, yeah, I'm, you know, Suabuki's learning how to do my job. And it's like, what job? <laughs> so I think in that, in through, like we were saying, uh, Mickey's arc is very much wrapped in the concept of time. He's trapped by the past as opposed to necessarily a person. Mm-hmm. And so him actually being able to free himself from the past, um, he's able to give away this symbol of time to someone else, even if he's not necessarily free of the confines of the school in the way Anthony and Utena are. Right. Uh, then we have <laughs> Nanami. Nanami is a <laughs> is a comedy relief character with her own very tragic story. And I think she's probably the most... I feel like she might be the most divisive character um, in the entire uh, cast. A lot of people hate her or hate her at first. And and she presents herself as very hateable. She is very immature, not only in the way she acts, but also in the way she talks. It's this, this Japanese thing of referring to herself in the third person all the time, this very childish notion. And she also has what is... I, I, it is very much read as incestuous as a, as a romance towards her brother. Uh, and not only that, but she's also the bitchy popular girl right. who's like pranking Anthe at first. Like she gives her a dress that'll dissolve. She's trying to like fill her like lunchbox with bugs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. She She's very much like she wants to always be the center of attention. And when that gets pulled away, specifically uh, from Toga, her brother, it's just like, no holds barred, like, she is ready to just ruin someone's life. Like, I think one of her friends mentions they have a crush and tries asking him out at one point, and she just, like, that person's dead to her. She doesn't even know that bitch's name. That is the one friend that gets named, I think, which is Keiko. The the one with the pigtails. Who is, like, the leader of her little, like, clique. Or, like, the leader of the, the lesser people of her clique. Like, she's the primary, like, person that Nami talks to. Uh, she also has this interesting thing going on as um, essentially the foil to uh, Anthe. Okay. Um, she's um, basically a lot of how she acts in this very opposite way of like Anthe kind of like defines Anthe a lot more in the first season than how Anthe defines herself with her own actions. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have Nanami who's very energetic and uh, bubbly and very much wanting to be this person in control of everything versus this person who is controlled by everyone. Right. And we see a lot of mirrors and parallels of that continue as the show goes on, because like you said, there's um, the relationship with each of the characters, um, brothers, and how Nanami is a, becomes aware of the situation with uh, Anthe and Akio, so she's seeing these parallels in herself that she's very uncomfortable by, even though she doesn't think that that's what her feelings are. She keeps asking herself, but what if they are? And very ner- unnerved and unwrought by these, um, these feelings she's processing. And Nanami's control, uh, or desire for control, also comes with the fact that she has like this, this middle school boyfriend sort of for a little bit uh, Suabuki who basically is like a is like a servant to her and he's doing it because he has this like real genuine affection for her 
and has this desire to like play the role of big brother for her in the way that he sees how she looks at like Toga. He very much wants to be a prince in the way that the other characters of the cast are, but is unable to because he's this small, immature kid. Like, I think even at one point, like, he tries going to the um, Black Rose seminar and uh, Mikage is just like, yo, kid, this isn't for you. Let the big boys play. <laughs> right. It's very much like your your emotions come from a different position. Um, and so you you are not you are not filled with the same sort of like darkness that other people are. This is, like, very genuine while other people are having these, like, you know, very dark, uh, villainous emotions come out because of these characters. But um, Nanami, even though she's very much, like, a, a joke character, has this has this kind of, like, sad arc wrapped in a very, like, silly idea, which is the, um, the, the egg episode. Like, she has a lot of joke episodes where, like, she has to go to, um, to India to find, like, curry, spice... And like fight a kangaroo and all these other things, but like she turns into a cow. She turns into a ca- cow. That's weird. Um, because she wears a cowbell. And like ultimately, Nanami's uh, resolution of who her character is comes from this episode where she seems to have laid an egg. And it's a. Uh, I think the the most direct interpretation of this is sort of this like kind of first period, sort of like first step into adolescence that Nanami has, and like. This fear that she's somehow very different from other people. It ties into this concept of um, the world as an egg and the world as the self, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're cracking the shell of the world. However, the world in self and uh, revolution represents self actualization. So thereby, like having this egg, this egg in a lot of ways represents her. And as she's talking to people about eggs, we're seeing all this like. Um, dramatic, kind of comedic, dramatic irony in that people, she's talking about like laying a literal egg. People are um, overlaying their own meaning onto that and confusion when they ask her, which leads to all these multi-layered conversations that she's just having around a central set piece. Yes. And, um, and just like when it comes down to it, like she, she ends up being very proud of this fact that, that she laid an egg thinking that it's like kind of her first look into adulthood and toga just like shuts her the fuck down when he she tries to present it like toga literally goes do you know why we have such a good relationship as a family nanami it's because you're a girl who doesn't lay eggs (laughs) yeah there's very much like this um aspect of that conversation where it's like if my sister laid an egg i would disown her and nanami suddenly becomes very embarrassed about this thing that she used to be very proud of and it shows not only, like, the way that Toga treats other people, and especially her sister, but, like, Nanami suddenly feels ashamed of what she sees as a very natural process. You know, what she understands to be very natural, which I think kind of lays into this idea that maybe it's a, you know, it's a metaphor for sort of, like, menstruation. Um, like, it's it's so hard to parse the different layers of Ikuhara's imagery. But there, there's, and I think there's a lot of it here like this egg is not just one thing yeah definitely it's 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 very much representative of personal growth and the physicality of personal growth in a lot of ways but what exact way is unclear um and there's also like this half implication that it was just a dream but also was a real thing as she's like finding like eggshells in her bed or something yeah like she wakes up one day to find that that egg is cracked after having a dream 
of the egg hatching and exploding. So, like, Nanami's another character who, in a lot of ways, is doing the best she can to claim herself and almost, like, even not even break out of these cycles, but understand her life better. But the more she understands, the more she's discomforted by herself because she's getting a clearer look at herself and, like, her relationships, and, and that's a really uncomfortable thing to anyone. Yeah, and, like, there, there, there's a lot to be said about her relationship with Toga and the sort of, like, romantic thing going on there, but I think a lot of that relationship is more just, like, a discussion of how immature she is, and as she gets more mature, she starts to kind of question how she feels, because, like, there's a, there's a bit where Nanami comes to this, not a realization, but kind of comes to this theory that Toga isn't uh, a blood relative of her, and starts to question sort of like all of these feelings that she's had for him. And I don't think, you know, if it were just romantic that that would mean anything. It's very much this sibling relationship realizing that all this, like, um, adoration that she puts on him for being this older and, like, um, sort of, like, impressionable character to her like, is all of that false because it turns out that they're not family? And Toga super plays into that idea of, like, I was just being nice to her because, like, my real parents told me to. There's this implication that um, very much she mirrors the um, Rose Bride in the mythic story we're told at the end of, uh, or at the beginning of the last season, that she very much can't be a princess or important to her brother because she's his sister, right? Right. And so she just really wants to be, like, important to him in general, but he's really only after um, these conquests and these um, schemes that he's doing to attain something that he doesn't even know what he's trying to get. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, so... Going to Toga, who is, uh, I guess, presented as the first possible prince of the story as a big playboy. And just, like, his whole thing is, uh, I mean, with his self-discovery, it's that, like, he is interested in more than just these conquests that he's making. I actually think he's um, probably one of the more subtly complicated characters in the series. Because we have a lot of... um, information that retroactively makes sense of Toga as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the... Because originally we're, you know, introduced to him as this very, like, subtle background manipulator type person who, like, wraps everyone around his fingers, stuff like that. Very much a um, lesser version of uh, Akio. But we're introduced to this fact that um, he met Utena while... Uh, she was young and doesn't remember him. And uh, he was very much transfixed by this girl who was awaiting death from the loneliness that uh, the death of her parents left. And that he couldn't save. Yes. Because he had the, he had this interest in sort of like trying to help her out, but he was unable to show her something eternal, which was her wish. Yeah, that, you know, leads into a lot of the, you know, core themes of the show. She wanted to see something eternal. Later, we, you know, find out that uh, Dios came along and showed her what was truly eternal suffering. Um, And that's what led her to be able to continue with her life. But because he wasn't able to do that, he finds himself almost desperate to 
towards the way he, like, acts toward other people, but in a way that isn't really obvious unless you know who he is. Mm -hmm. And, like, by the end, he has these very real feelings for Utena. Um, Despite wanting to manipulate her at the start, it seems like he's, he's really come to respect and maybe, like, be very romantically interested in Utena for who she is. It's um, really interesting because by the end of the series, um, almost all of these like antagonistic characters, except for Akio, come to respect and admire Utena, and in Toga's case, come to like have feelings for her and like come to love her. And a lot of his realization towards the end of the series is that all these schemes and goofball shenanigans that he's like put in place, like he doesn't want them to come to pass. He doesn't want Akio's schemes we've been working with for a very long time to come to pass because he realizes and understands that that means um, that Utena will have to face betrayal and uh, the heart wrench of the final duel. And his last ditch effort was with when Sionji joins him, who is this close friend of him who discovered... um, Utena's coffin uh, with him as a child and comes to duel her not, not for himself for the very first time but he comes to duel her for her yeah he's like hey if I win you're you will go out with me basically which doesn't really in a lot of ways justify things he does oh no um there's there's a lot of things that make him like i want to say like a more tragic character but that still doesn't you know justify like that he's still like become this like really terrible person yeah when we talk about these characters as like tragic and sort of like having these complicated like things that doesn't justify the things they are it just makes it so that it, it maybe recontextualizes why they do the things and we can find um a, re- a, a relatable um view in that and stuff like that but we're not we're not trying to say that these are good people Utena's uh one of the more complicated aspects of Utena as a work is that almost everyone is kind of wrapped in these really bad and unhealthy relationships and a lot of the point of the series ends up being is that they're very much um stuck on them because they don't have this almost um, elusive aspect that Utena has that allows her to break out of these cycles around her. And a lot of the question of the series is what that trait is, and it never quite tells you, but you're able to infer aspects of it by seeing um, what eventually allows her to do and change things around her. And a lot of that is just this empathy and selflessness that she carries with her. Yeah, everyone else is working for these um, these very selfish goals and, like, Utena, you know, claims that some of it is hers, but it all also comes from this desire to protect Anthe. Um, during the Black Rose arc, everyone's just trying to kill her, and so she's a protector. And she's protecting Anthe from, like, Sionji and these other people who want to, to use her in, like, um, Utena uses uh, Anthe as sort of like a, a thing to boost her morale because she is protecting this person, but everyone else has these almost more sinister goals of like using um, Anthe for their own personal gain in order to fill some hole in their life. And it can only be done by Anthe. Um, the difference with Utena is Utena, it could have been anyone. It could have been Wakaba or someone. 
You know, her original duel was in some ways to protect Wakaba's honor. But it it ends up on Anthe, and there's this relationship that builds between them because of that. And she's still able to work through those feelings and able to connect with her uh, because she's able to acknowledge that she was projecting a lot onto her and able to work through this through the acceptance of things around her. Yeah, there's there's definitely like a a self-reflection that doesn't appear in the other characters until like their their dreams have been wholly crushed by Utena. <laughs> um, do we want to talk about the last two duels? We kind of got into sort of who they are because they're sort of like main villains with uh, Mikage and Akio. Um, yeah, um, those are both uh, very interesting characters. Very hard to um, wrap up. Well, I mean, Mikage was only introduced for a season, but. Um, Akio's been around since season two, basically. Yeah. And technically his influence has been there since, you know, since season one. Yeah, season one, since he's sending all the letters that say the end of the world, and the entire inclusion is kind of like... About Akio's failures. Yes, yes. Um, About his inability to move forward and his being stuck. It takes this grander scale than the series, because throughout the rest of the series, while there are very light magical elements, they're very much just about these regular people dealing with very human problems, um, metaphorically dealing with those problems through sword fights, right? Mm-hmm. Akio and the Dios are very much in this weird area, because they're very much these ascended mystical characters, but at the same time it's their humanness that causes the drive of the plot. Mm -hmm. Anthe's um, desire to be truly seen by anyone, as we learn, like, a lot of the, you know, um, question for her and, like, issues with her is that she just wanted her brother to care about her in the way that he was, like, saving all these maidens in the world. And a lot of her hope in seeing these duelists is that she will is very separate from uh, Akio because Akio wants someone who can give him the power to open the door. But um, Anthe is hoping to find someone who is truly princely to save herself from this cycle that she's been stuck in for who knows how long of years. Yeah. Since time is very much um, very unclear in both this setting and specifically the school, as we learned in the Black Rose arc. Right, where the school is unmoving in time. Yeah, it's unmoving in time, yet it has generations of different duelists. So that's right. kind of confusing. Um, so it's very unclear how many cycles have happened and how long each cycle is if the players aren't necessarily aging. Mm-hmm. I imagine getting it um, accepted into a Tory Academy is a very confusing thing. Like, the school looks prestigious. I've never heard of it before. But it, it seems like it's at least been decades. Because when that that woman first shows up, it's like, it's been 20-something years. She's gotten old while Akio has stayed his, uh, his same beautiful self. Definitely. So, Utena... Um, we actually, like, see this aspects of this even in the first season as... We don't get to see Anthe as a genuine person in the first season until the very last episode. 
there are hints of it, I think, because you see, like, her love of animals and stuff. But yes, definitely she is not, like, a character proper until near the end. But towards the end, there's sort of this, um... We see at, like, the beginning of the season that she's very much like, oh, who's this new girl? I didn't expect another duelist. Um, and as we see, like, her thoughts, and it's the only time we actually... One of the two times we actually see her thoughts in the series. She's just very much dismissive of Utena as first, being like, oh, quaint. She thinks she can be a prince. And then as we see her beat um, Toga in a rematch at the end of the first season, uh, we see... Anthe's eyes light up in a way that we've never seen them before as she's like thinking that this person could be the one. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these um, drama of the ending ends up coming from her role. Um, I think we've gone over like some of the betrayal that uh, Anthe's felt um, because of Akio's role in it and how all these like characters are just like getting very absorbed into these, like, layers of, like, dramatic irony between the perceptions of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, Akio is... He's he's actually the earliest, like, very large example of dramatic irony we have in the series, because we're almost immediately aware that he's not treating Anthe in any good way. We see that he's, like, meeting with, like, Anthe in secret and seems to be very controlling of her in the way that uh, people who win her are. Yeah, I think from even the very first episode where we meet Akio, like, Anthe goes to meet with him at night, which eventually is, re- is you know, shown to be this, like, the this sexual thing that they're going through. And, um... Uh, we also see that he's... In his personal life, we also get to see a lot of him as he, you know, talks to his, like, fiancé and Utena, and uh, sometimes even, like, the other duelists, as we see him as being this person who's always smiling and joking around, this very intellectual person who has a very um, satanic feel to the character, because at one point he's directly talking about, oh, that's the morning star, Lucifer. Right, and that's where my name comes from. Um, yeah, because he's showing this, um, projector because he's so interested in stars and space. And he spends a lot of time with his characterization with Utena talking about the symbology of flowers and stars. Mm -hmm. Um, so we are very much introduced to how he, and it's actually in those moments that he's very weirdly honest for his character. Like, he's saying these things that he honestly relates to about the world around him. And they all end up being things about um, the kind of core themes of people being wrapped up in each other in the world. And uh, I think even he's somewhat aware that he's wrapped up in his own obsession of gaining his power back, but also is so taken in by that quest to become his former self that his awareness doesn't stop him from doing that. Yeah, like he... In some ways, I don't think he realizes how much he's putting um, Anthe through. Like, he, he, he seems to have resigned himself to the fact that she will feel terrible forever until he saves her. And doesn't do anything to try to make it better, but in fact ends up making it worse through his own sort of, like, selfish, carnal desires. 
But he also resents her. For changing him? Um, I think for changing him, but also just for being the Rose Bride. Mm-hmm. Because um, I think there's, like, very much, like, an instant where he's just, like, looking at her, like, saying, like, um, she disgusts him because her way of handling things is to, you know, just doing things that she's told and uh, going through things in a very, like, robotic way because that's how she handles and, like, processes things. Mm-hmm. And um, I think he sees that change in, in her without understanding his role in it. So there's, like you said, there's very much this um, lack of awareness that's masked behind what he thinks is self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And he very much revels in this, like, Lucifer kind of role that he plays because he's aware that he is playing that role and he is playing this villain. But I think he thinks of himself as so much of being the Prince Dios that that can't be him at the same time. Right, like, he he seems to know that he is playing a villain, but he's also above it because he was a prince. And it's uh, almost kind of um, funny because we get into this um, idea again that uh, all he needed to do to get back his power was to shed a single tear for Anthe. Yeah, or show just that that selflessness for Anthe that he couldn't achieve. But that's something that he's never able to muster up in the entire series. He always um, tries to cultivate these swords from the selves of people as he builds their selves and personhoods up so that he can... um, rip it away from him to try to use someone else's strength and princeliness to um, force his way through the um, rose gate that, like, holds his power. And uh, anytime we, like, when we see him actually do that, when we see him take Utena's um, sword, he basically just pokes it a couple times, and the sword breaks, and he just has this, like, realization that uh, not even, like, a realization. He's just so used to it, so casual, that he, like, is literally drinking, like, a martini or a daiquiri or something, yeah, right? Like, this he, he gives free this, drink. He gives this conclusion. It's like, oh, well, uh, that one failed. I'm done. And then he sort of, like, watches Utena struggle at it while he j- drinks uh, some kind of cocktail. And he's like, ah, oh, wait, shit. Oh, no, she did it. Ah. He's he's very confused and bemused by Utena because he sees her bleeding out because of uh, Anthe's betrayal, which lost uh, Utena the duel when uh, she stabbed her. Um, Utena's bleeding out. She's crawling to this door with all her might, and she's just banging on this door because she's seeing Anthe stabbed by the millions and millions of swords of hate flying in the sky like this angry swarm of bees, just uh, impaling her from every which angle. And uh, she's so wrought by and so hurt by the pain that Anthe's going through uh, that she's trying to force open this door with her bare hands. Her fingers are bleeding because she's just trying to pry open this cement door so hard. And uh, it's her tear that uh, falls into the rose crest, much the way the symbology we see throughout the dual sequence with the 
rose rings in the droplet of water opening the door throughout the entire series. Mm-hmm. Um, her tear falls and opens this door in the same way, which allows her to reach that deeper self of Anthe, that vulnerable self that she's hidden away. And even then, as you know, this is all going on, like the world's falling apart around them. As I think it's implied, it's very unclear what's going on or where they're at because it's this implication that, like, oh, everything in this room was the fake projector, but then there's this idea that after the duel happened, reality is sort of like stripped away into this symbolic place with the swords of hate and um, Akio as like the end of the world and like this kind of ha- hovering platform. So, like, when everything's falling away, like, it's a Again, really unclear what's literally happening in this room or this sense. But there's this idea that by opening the door, it's um, causing everything to fall apart. And she's trying to reach out to Anthe's more vulnerable self. And I think they, like, touch fingers or they grab hands before they have to let go and fall away as everything falls apart. Which leads to the ending we've talked about before where Anthe's... um, leaving uh, Artori Academy to find Utena, who has vanished, and everyone is forgetting about her. Mm-hmm. All right, so I guess next we... And since that also was kind of wraps up as to what we were saying about the duelists by talking about uh, Akio, because the only way to understand Akio as a duelist is to understand him as a character, like... He's someone who his duel isn't even won directly through things he does. It's won through him pulling the parts of people around him to manipulate Anthe to betraying the only person she really cares about. Right. Uh, yeah, he he doesn't win on his own. In fact, Utena gets the upper hand on him by really just like fully denying everything he's saying and then has to rely on Anthe to save him. So even he himself cannot be the prince that saves others, he has to be saved. Alright, well, I do want to end this note with some aspects, with some added things on um, Anthe's role as the Rose Bride. Since I've talked about like what it means to be the Rose Bride, but in like her character development in the first season. But there's actually this really interesting aspect of her character that I didn't realize until the second time I watched the series. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in the first season, Anthe is definitely characterized as being this um, wallflower sort of person who just reacts to what she's told. But there are several actual instances where she takes actions of her own um, volition. And each time she does it, it's very important, though watching it, you wouldn't understand what she's doing until you understand more about the narrative arcs of the duelists. Mm -hmm. But she basically gives people these gifts that are very much fuck yous. (laughs) Like, for example... She gives Yuri a flower as a gift, and Yuri slaps her because she managed to somehow figure out the exact flower that related to um, her past and the girl she had a crush on. Right. But that's very—that's a very pointed and purposeful action from Anthe. She resents the other duelists, but she can't 
directly bring herself to act against them. So in a lot of ways, she's specifically doing things to piss them off or rile them up. And this might even be because she wants them to lose the duels. Yes, because like in the in the middle of like Mickey's duel, she like cheers for Utena and Mickey feels like, you know, he's saving Anthe and giving her this individuality, but Anthe is so um, interested in Utena that he just like immediately loses all will to duel. <laughs> There's it's actually even like deeper than that with how she fucks with Mickey. There's this implication that, like, oh, she's playing the exact same mm-hmm. song that he played with his sister as a child. So he's so intensely interested in this person because he's trying to regain that. And through this interest in, like, learning uh, more about her in the piano, he's growing infatuated with her. And she's purposely using things he remembers from his past to get himself further infatuated with her so that she, in the end, can essentially betray that feeling of trust because he thinks he's freeing her from Utena by the end by the first duel. Right. And by cheering on for Utena, he manages she manages to rip that away from him. And there's very much this idea that she is rooting for Utena, but and is growing attached to Utena despite the fact that like the way she's acting friendlier towards Utena throughout the first season is a lie. She actually is doing things to specifically upset the duelists so that they will, these memories will come up during the duels and cause them to lose. Mm -hmm. And riling them up in that way. She even does this to uh, sabotage uh, Nanami by giving um, Toga a kitten. Oh right, the for the birthday thing. There's that. And there's the there's the like talking to Sayonji and sort of like indulging him just enough with the like weird emotions diary that he keeps. Oh yeah, yeah, that I forgot about the diary. That that too. She's very much stirring up his emotions um because she wants him to lose and he's like thinking, "Oh, she wants me to uh save her, but there's this implication that like, oh, well, I was never told to stop writing the diary, so I just continued with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the kittens with Toga weren't specifically to rile Toga up, they were specifically to rile Nanami up, because to Toga, these kittens were a happy reminder of a kitten he had as a childhood that just mysteriously disappeared one day, and sadly. But as we learn from Nanami's point of view, she fucking- <laughs> Nanami fucking drowned a cat! She fucking drowned those kitties so badly. But yes, just specifically because she was jealous of the attention they were getting from Toga. <laughs> it's so fucked up. Oh, Nanami has so many issues. Oh. Mm-hmm. But- <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I find that, like, really in- a really interesting detail of the characterization of, uh, Anthe in that the things she outwardly says and does around people are very much based on her interpretation of what she wants. But in really subtle moments that to anyone else don't seem like they mean anything, they are these huge grand gestures, which kind of lends to everyone being unnerved by Anthe, because she specifically knows the best way to hurt people in the like subtlest way possible. And you might believe early on that it's, like, a coincidence. 
But as you learn more about kind of her her role and Akio's, you realize how much of this has been orchestrated specifically to to lead to the conclusion of the story. It's way fucked up. <laughs> yeah. There's there's a lot of fun of the character drama of the series, which I think is like what ends up being the like most humanizing aspect is that everyone is fucked up and like is caught in these like loops of like attention and um power and all the things that people are just kind of caught up in in general. And these like kind of microcosms of these specific aspects and elements of the world, I feel, end up making it more uh, relatable and I think just because like growing up in the Midwest where everyone is fucked up very terribly it ended up giving me a lot of like tools and language to understand the world around me because there's just a lot of like you know terrible shit going on with like my friends growing up or um, other like things like that and no real way to comprehend it but then this gives me through its um, symbolic language this understanding of what's going on around me through this kind of like fairy tale language and this understanding that people when they can't like overtly gain power they go to like um like kind of like sneakier more subtle methods in the way that like anthe does and that that's not necessarily a bad thing but it's kind of like corner that they're pushed into it it managed to help me help me grow as a person not only because it gave me these tools and language to understand the world around me but also just because like through utena it gave me this kind of like person to aspire to be this cool girl who's this girl prince and i never really had that sort of thing before but uh with all of that i think it's time to revolution <laughs> <laughs> ah, i got it oh it's time to talk about the adolescence of utena so real quick kind of synopsis of this is it's a it's a retelling of the story of utena from front to back with kind of very condensed sort of versions of the 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 emotions and the the themes going on with a little bit extra added because it's not quite like a straight adaptation like there are a lot of things very different about the story and how it presents these things but ultimately it, it is sort of like a, a another version of the same story condensed to an hour and a half which just means everything fucking zooms by it's um, it zooms by. It's not as emotionally filling. Most of what it does as a movie only works if you've seen the original series. Right. It is. It it very much like requires some understanding to get more out of it. But also on its own, it presents things that you may like recontextualize some of the things from the movie um, into the original series and sort of the characters that are built there. Uh, yeah, it gives this. Like, the biggest thing it does is that it makes a lot of the themes and um, concepts of the original series a lot more, like, clear and upfront, and it's definitely not as good, like, writing-wise or character-wise because of how much of the subtlety and, like, um, continuing elements it just completely washes away. Yeah, it kind of, it almost entirely writes out Akio as a character, um, and in fact, recontextualizes Toga as the prince. Yeah, which, in a, in, a, in a way, like, that's sort of, like, the role he was playing, because he did have, like, this kind of connection to um, Utena's childhood in the original series. But this is a much more overt. This is much more overt, um, just because it 
I was going to say, like, it removes a lot of the mystical aspects of the show for, like, a very long time, and then it just suddenly doesn't. It's extreme. Like, the entire back half is just nuts, and in a completely different way than the original story was. Like, the mysticism of everything, like, the mythology of the, the series just gets cranked up to, like, 11. Um, because it's, it's like... Toga is there, and Utena interacts with him, and Utena clearly has this greater history with him when they were children, but this whole time Toga's dead, and it turns out that he was like this this prince who saved a girl drowning, and Utena's sort of been chasing after him this whole time to kind of like find this this resolution for uh, you know someone that she cared about who ultimately died. Um, Toga's role is honestly like I think the most interesting. Um, part of the movie before the like final half of the movie. <laughs> right. Um, okay, the movie doesn't really add a lot of stuff to the other characters. Like, it kind of makes Anthe's internal processes and internal thoughts more overt and more on the surface. Um, it also whitewashes her, which is pretty gross. But um, a lot of the, like, character changes um, are like that in a way. Like, Utena, like, I I adore her design in the movie. Yeah, she has a much cooler outfit. She has a cooler outfit as this, like, she's a lot more, like, androgynous, a lot more, like, boyish in the movie. Like, she has, like, shorter hair. Like, there's a point where one of the characters doesn't even realize that uh, she's a girl until the uh, sword fight with her. I think that's Sionji. I think, yeah, I think that's Sionji, too. And... Uh, she's also got, like, this cool, like, fucking, like, hat she wears, so I, like, love her design, but as far as her character, it ends up being, like, more focused around this, like, kind of, like, obsessive aspect with, um, Toga, but then there's this, like, very realization that the, the her relationship with Anthe is a lot more overt. She's very much declaring, like, love for, like, Anthe. They kiss in this series, which is something that the TV, uh, the TV series never got around to. Yeah, um... Like, within the first bit, and then, like, at the end, they are extremely naked and kissing. And there's also, like, a middle part where, like, Anthe's very, like, clearly, like, trying to, um, seduce, like, Utena because she's, uh, the person who, uh, is engaged to her at that point in this, like, she's going around talking to other people she's been engaged to about, like, does she do that kind of thing with you? Anthe, in this movie, is, ex- is like, more overtly sexual. Yeah, um, which it, I feel like a lot of the writing for the movie, like, it diminishes, like, everyone's characters in a lot of ways, <laughs> and, um, like, t- for the entire end of the movie, like, uh, Anthe becomes, like, a more take-charge kind of person for the resolution, which I think it's fun to see that twist on the character, but none of it holds the same kind of, like, weight or importance as, like, the original series held. Like, I've heard some people who've watched the movie as, like, this kind of, like, distillation of the original series, but it doesn't work as that. Like, it only adds things to the original series. It doesn't really work on its own. Except for maybe the most, um, the most incredulous change yes, the most that they made. incredulous change. But before I get to that, I want to finish my original point on uh, Toga. Toga, you see in this movie, first of all, it turns out he was uh, dead the entire time. And it's really funny because there's this story about how he drowned trying to save a girl when he was um, a kid and like Utena 
knew him from that way, so he's just become this symbol of princeliness to you, Tad, because of his willing to risk his life for, life for someone. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this actually kind of funny like thing that someone pointed out to me after I um, rewatched the movie, where every time Toga is in a scene, there's running water involved. Like, it's the running water that reminds uh, Utena of him. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't notice that. Like, there'll be rain, or there'll be, like, a sink running, and then he'll, like, appear. Mm-hmm. Um, the next aspect of uh, his role is that uh, he very much has his backstory about um, being um, sold to this family who, to a stepfather that essentially, like, uses him. Mm-hmm. Um, Nanami doesn't appear in this as, um, his sister. Yeah, she appears as just, like, a fake-out. Like, they're they're talking about, oh, here's the scandalous tape they're gonna put in. And it's just this super long sequence of Nanami as a cow, like, having this, like, horrible interaction with Choo Choo. <laughs> um, yeah, and then, um, so, Toka's backstory in the movie actually connects to his role in the original series. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of, there are actually a lot of double-sided conversations with Nanami about um, their family, where Nanami has this opinion that they had this um, perfect family and everyone loved each other. And you can always like see these like looks on like, um, looks of disgust like on um, Toga's face as he's um, saying these things that imply things really weren't great and calling her childish for that. And um, very much there's this, like, volley of, like, understandings between what their life was like between the two of them. But it doesn't really elaborate on that in the original series. And while that could be a number of things due to the fact it's so vague, a lot of what you see in the movie of his character could fit into that. Mm Mm-hmm. The other actually similar aspect is, like you were saying, um, Akio's role in the movie is... Um, greatly reduced. It's, it's very greatly reduced, but it very much plays into this aspect that he may not even realize or see himself as doing anything wrong, or maybe specifically separating his mind from the fact that he's doing things wrong. Because, um, you, like, in relation to the abusive aspects of his role in the original series, you see him very clearly um, drugging Anthea points. And there's this realization that the, like, drugging wasn't working and she was, like, really awake. And this is causing him to look at himself clearly and panicking, which he panics so much that he accidentally falls off a balcony. Mm-hmm. And there's this um, idea that, like, in the movie world, the duels didn't start until he... Uh, fell off, and Anthe has been orchestrating them as to try and find someone to inspire her. Replace him? Oh, okay. I, I was gonna say, like, maybe, like, not replace him, but, like, to, like, replace him or, like, inspire her or to be, like, her um, prince, since the actual, like, relationship between the two characters wasn't as, like, clearly defined as in the original series. Right. And then he pops up right at the end to sort of, like, be the last impedance, but other than that, he is just, like, He's not there. Yeah, there's there's more of, like, a, a symbolic journey in this movie. A lot of the metaphoric language isn't as strong, despite the fact there's way more sim- symbols. Mm-hmm. And I think it ends up being reflective of a lot of um, flaws in Ikuhara's uh, later work, is that they're 
they they very heavily rely on symbology, but don't have as well written uh, characters, and they end up being too symbolic to understand what's going on even slightly. Okay. But as far as that goes, like um, we, this uh, movie ends up even essentially not even being about dueling so much as we have basically two duels before. Um, even like a duel and a half, really. Well, we have the Sionji duel and then we have like the Yuri duel, right? Yeah, the Yuri duel I don't think even really finishes, does it? They kind of just run off at the end. Yeah, it, it's all really weird and vague. Like none of the student council members super appear in the movie and if they do it's for like a very like reduced short role yeah um like they keep yuri in in her plot but like at the same time she's she already's not the same character she is um fucking a ghost um right, for some reason <laughs> yeah um, like her entire role for like the first half of the movie is just to be like toga's like plaything, and there's not really anything that goes along with that or like plays off of that. It's just like, oh, yep, there she is. And then she becomes like, uh, like kind of the main villain later. Yeah. I mean, like there's, um, that. So, okay. She has like winning these duels and declaring her, um, love for Anthe. So Anthe's like, Hey, that means you get the power to revolutionize the world. This whole school is my world and you control it, which is very different than the original series where that right. wasn't an explicit power as much as it is here. As we even like see this like shining light as like the swords coming out of her and the sword coming out of her represents this power and uh Utena just pushes it back pushes the sword back into her chest and is like, No, I don't want this world. I want you to let's go out let's leave this world. Come with me. And uh, Anthe's so used to this shell around her, the, you know, world being a shell metaphor is still there. And that sense mm-hmm. that she doesn't want to go. So this is the point of the movie. This is the part people came for. <laughs> this is the part people came for. This is where Utena is swallowed by a car wash. And she comes out as a car. Best part, though, is that it's playing the dual... Um, Ascendant theme. Um, yes. Uh, I forgot. I keep forgetting the name of it. Absolute Destiny Apocalypse? Yes. Ops- it's playing Absolute Destiny Apocalypse as she is being <laughs> transformed into a car. Um, so this is where all the hot whips come into this movie. Yeah, okay. So um, it's all orchestrated as like the shadow play people are doing like uh, running commentary as if it were like a racing game. They got assets from Sega to do this whole, like, racing game thing uh, as they race their way out of this uh, false world. Um, so, Yutena's, like, this hot pink, like, Barbie car with, like, these horse-like designs, like, over the, like, uh, the front wheels. wheels. Yeah. Yeah, and they, uh, which I guess kind of, like, lends the aspect of, like, a prince riding a horse. Right. But it's it's really abstract. It's a really abstract and weird car that um, <laughs> Anthe is driving now. And so they're racing away, and Shiori pops in, and she's like, "Hey, you didn't think you were the only person who could be a car? I'm a car now." And so there's this like this fight between them, sort of. Oh, there's this implication that Shiori's only motive in the movie is that she wanted to be as cool as Utena is. Which is a very, like, Wakaba plot, but Wakaba shows up as a jeep, like, a few seconds later. 
Right. So, um, Shiori is, they're fighting, and, like, this whole thing, like, Shiori, through her vanity of wanting to be a Zen, ends up, like, crashing into, like, a, a road barrier and dies. And it's, it's so nuts, because then, at the end, then we see, like, the castle reappears, but it's, like, this, the series of, like, mobile tanks. Uh, yeah, the castle is, like, on these, like, giant, like, tank treadmills with all these, like, wheels everywhere. And it's, like, moving around. And basically it's said that the castle is the exit to this world. Yeah, so they're trying to, like, weave their way through. At the end is Akio, who's, like, trying to crush the car to keep them together. And through their their combined powers, they're able to fight back against him. Uh, before they even do that, though, um, there's this aspect where... Um, and this actually... Oh, the other duelists show up. Yes. There's this aspect that um, actually leans into the end of the original series, mm-hmm. where basically after... Um, was it Shiri? Yeah. Yeah. After her car is killed off, this whole legion of cars that look exactly like her show up as, like, this dark power, and it's not really elaborated what they're supposed to be, mm-hmm. uh, but... This wave upon wave of cars is chasing um, Utena and Anthony now. And eventually, um, like, they're, like, weaving away from them. And then um, this uh, jeep shows up with um, the other duelists being Sayanji, Mickey, and Yuri riding in it. And they, like, save her and, like, block them off or whatever. And they're riding this green jeep. Like, it's bright green. And the license plate says Wakaba. Who hasn't shown up in the movie? No, she shows up at the very beginning oh, just yeah, to be yeah, like your tennis does, friend, does. and that's it. So, but uh, the whole point of that is like they talked and it was like, "Hey, you guys get out of here and kind of save yourself. We'll be following you soon, kind of as soon as we find ourselves." Which is kind of follows the implications of the ending of the original series: is that everyone else will because Utena touched. Because Utena and Anthony touched their lives, that they'll be able to break out of their own cycles and also leave Atori the way that Utena and Anthony do. Right, and then then they have the then they have the mobile castle tank, and Akio shows up, and they power through, and that's just kind of the end. <laughs> yeah, like the end is um, kind of weird because they're like, um, well, we need to go to the outside world, even if there's like nothing out there, right? Right. As this weird, like, Mad Max wasteland out there. It's this, like, Mad Max wasteland where everything's piles of, like, broken car parts. And, um... Utena and Anthe are... Like, they... At one point, like, uh, Utena transforms back into a person, but they're... Basically, this... It's not a motorcycle. It's, like, an axle of wheels of the car that's left with, like, an engine strapped to it. Like, it's not even a vehicle at this point. Yeah, and Utena and Anthe are on it, naked, lying together, and just, like, looking at each other. And totally making out. And that's, like, just the end. It is the gayest thing in the entirety of this series. Yes. Um, and so, that's the part where everyone turns into fucking cars. It's, yeah. That, and, that, and that's, like, that's, yeah. And uh, the entire thing um, Ikuhara says about it is like, yeah, I just wanted to see them turn into cars. I thought it'd be cool. Like, like that's, his, that's been his whole answer. <laughs> there, I think there's like a bit more into the, in the like DVD commentary for like the movie where he's very much wanting to talk about his, uh, the meaning of the cars and then like pulling himself back and like doing it again and pulling himself back. 
And then he eventually just comes to this conclusion of, uh, by saying, like, I have meaning for the cars, but people's confusion is too fun for me to want to dispel that. <laughs> uh, that's, the, that's the heart of this whole thing. Um, yeah, I- I- Iku, I don't, like, I don't think Ikuhara's works uh, oftentimes um, are as good as his own. And this actually comes up to our next uh, topic. Our next topic is that, if anything, in the years after uh, Utena, or even before that, um, really live up to it as much as themes and emotional content in, in a similar capacity. Like, if you watched Utena, like, what would you want to not get the same things out of? Because no one ever like really wants to see the same thing just redone as the same thing. But they want to get the same feeling out of it. Yeah, like what what would give you the same kind of um, feeling and denouement and like satisfaction as Utena, right? Yeah, and we talked about a couple series with this that we've listed here, and two of the three here have some sort of connection to the 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 uh, development team behind Utena. Uh, first one being Star Driver, who has the same, like, script writer. Yes, Star Driver, um... This, okay, so, real quick, this is the, yes. this is like the mecha one with the transforming, like, boy prince. Right? Uh, yes, he's the Galactic Bishonin. Right, okay, just wanna make sure I, I got this one, so that's Star Driver. Um, yeah, Star Driver is, um, it's very similar to Utena in format, in that you basically have this uh, secret organization at a school who's vying for this hidden power to change the world that can only be activated by certain means. So they're having these secret robot battles in this impossible space over this hidden power. But um, it has, like, that's like kind of like half of it, is that it has really fun characters and cast and kind of um, plays with that sort of um, playful um, antagonistic relationship that uh, Utena has with her antagonists, in that they're very much kind of like working for this maybe like not maybe not evil but like selfish purpose. But at the same time, they're also all students who go to the same school and kind of just like casually get along with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is like always like a really fun dynamic for um, antagonistic or rival characters is to just kind of have that like oh fr- we're friendly in our off time kind of like relationship. But its biggest issue is that like it lacks a lot of the strong themes and heart as Utana. So by the end of it, you're I don't feel you're like really fulfilled by this sort of like character arc that you'd want to get out of it. Mm-hmm. As it ultimately, I feel doesn't, like, know what point it's trying to make at all, if other than just to be fun. And even then, it gets, like, it's not trying to be fun, like, it's trying to be more than that at the end, and doesn't really live up to that. Yeah. Uh, the other series that I think was comparable to trying to be Utena is actually, has almost the exact opposite problem, and that's uh, Mawaru Penguin Drum, which was also directed by Ikuhara. This is Ikuhara's first thing after Utena. It came like 10 years or something after. It came a while after. And it is predominantly written by him and one other writer, but he is the main thing that like people were drawn to with Mawaru Penguin Drum because of his work with Utena. And uh, it has a lot of problems. 
it seems very uh, so i haven't seen uh star driver or this but this seems like the most thematically similar to sort of the relationship angle of uh utena like that is true like it's very much a show about relationships and characters but the characters the way they act are all very overt. It doesn't feel like there's a lot going on under the surface, and the more things you learn under that are going on under the surface feel like they've came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Ikuhara goes overboard with the symbolism, whereas um, Utena, it, they have symbolic aspects that lend into the physical things going on. This story's more symbolic than it is actual, so almost all of the meaning that you're getting out of the story is through your interpretation of those uh, symbols and those abstracted uh, myths Mm -hmm. to the point where there's really no payoff to the show because it can be anything you want it to be. Not to mention the writing lacks the awareness of towards its characters um, Utena has, as the characters do a lot of, like, really gross, like, things. Not that they didn't in Utena, but there's this lack of, like, understanding as to where they come from, or even in some, or even in some cases, a lack of understanding that the things that they're doing are gross. Right, like, Utena is one of those shows, like, we, they will continue to contextualize these things that are happening as bad. Yes, but this show very much, like, I mean, like, it kind of does, but it, like, mishandles, like, everything in these, like, really, I feel, like, disrespectful in overt ways. So, um, not only that, but also, like I said, it ends up being a series that's the opposite of Star Driver, which Star Driver was a lot of really good character stuff with not a great theme backing. This is a lot of almost too much theming and, like, symbology with too little character stuff like none of the characters are interesting to me and all their complexities feel like these shallow like twists thrown into everything Mm -hmm. there actually is one series that i think if you wanted something similar to utena you might enjoy a lot and uh torps actually reminded me of this um before we were recording but it's called uh princess tutu and that, I think, one thing that maybe makes this one one that doesn't stand out as much is how much it seems to frame itself as a lot more childish. It frames itself as very um, childish, and it is it is a lot less um, dark as a story. But it has a lot of the thematic kind of um, similarities of uh, flipping fairy tales on its head. Um, like, the main character's a duck trying to be a real girl. You have a lot of the more character, almost like a princely kind of story, as there's, there's a story of this, like, prince whose heart was shattered, so they're trying to, like, collect the shards. And it all coming together in this um, weird, half-symbolic, half-literal fairy tale kind of story. Like, a lot of characters we see are just fable-style animals in school uniforms in the background mm-hmm. and i think it ends up being like really fun because of that and manages to hit a lot of the really strong thematic and symbology tying together to maybe not make like as dark and serious of a story but a story that's still um poignant to the um viewers mm-hmm. um i i like it a lot it's been a while since i've seen it so i don't really have like the themes and like um, story as like strongly in my head, but I think that 
if you like Utena and want a jumping off point for another series to check out, that's definitely like solidly where I planned. This might be the only other series that's like available legally for streaming because I know it's on uh, Amazon Prime Video. I don't think Penguin Drum or Star Driver are streaming as is. Um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Pr- Princess Tutu is like older, so like it definitely uh, is easier to find. Oh, Star um, Driver's on Crunchyroll, but I'm pretty sure Penguin Drum, uh, no one has the rights for right now. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, and it kind of brings into this like greater point about Utena, is that it's entirely a fluke. I don't mean that like in a bad way because I enjoy and love everything that Utena is. But the fact that it's not only the fact that this specific crew came together to make it, it's that this crew specifically came together at this like time in their life. They had like all these different things going on that ended up lending and bleeding into the story that they were trying to create, which is kind of um, you know sad in a lot of ways. But also like, um, and I only have like vaguely understand because I've had like someone relay this information to me as opposed to checking out a lot of the. Um, interviews and, like, other promotional, like, um, materials. But it's... I'm really glad it's happened just because this complete, almost, accident of work has been probably one of the, like, most important stories that I've, like, involved myself in my life. It's it's kind of a perfect storm, I think. Like, everyone's (laughs) right place... It's it's right place, right time, and sort of, like, right conditions to create this. And there's, there's not... There's, there would be, it would be very difficult to like try to recreate this sort of like success or this sort of story. It would also be hard to like, not only like for something to like recreate it, but for also something just to do all of this on purpose, right? Like there's so much going on that like came from all these points of views and all these things making this story that it's hard to imagine something coming together in its own similar way. And while I definitely have other works I like and other works that are important to me, there's, I don't think anything that can ever occupy the same place as what this occupies in my heart. Mm-hmm. I definitely get why it's so important, especially because, like, throughout college, I heard from a lot of the, the kind of, like, the, the queer circles uh, that I interacted with how, how important this show was for, like, representation and stuff like that. And sort of like an understanding of the the things that go on in their lives that maybe like fit those sort of things like you know in uh indecision with the the self yeah it it definitely um like I said like like seeing like the queer representation was a really cool aspect of the show, but the most important on aspect of the show honestly to me was the um language and understanding it gave me to the world around me and the things going on with, like, people around me that, like, wasn't something I could get really get from, like, anywhere else. Just because, like, I lived, like, in the middle of nowhere, so everything's, like, really, like, isolating and hard to, like, understand and deal with. And it's, like, you know, how do you deal with things, like, when people, you know, around you are, like, being, like, um, hurt and, like, just bad things are going on. So I was at least able to comprehend the world around me, like, a lot better Mm -hmm. through experiencing this. So, I've talked a lot about, um, like, just what it specifically means to me. Did you come out of Utena having seen it years later and having, like, only heard lots about it? Um, did you come taking anything out of it when you saw it? I... So, one thing that I think was 
I, I I definitely got sold on it more on sort of the the like representation side of it, and I wasn't I was kind of surprised by the the different depths that it went to, and sort of like looking at relationships and stuff like that. Is it even now? It feels like progressive in the way that is very like smart and handles these these relationships and these situations with like a, a care and delicacy that like points out the reasons why these things happen without also being like oh well it's okay because you know the, the these people are troubled um which is a thing that i think a lot of stories just in general but is also in anime like have a lot of trouble with is like m- making this line where it's like yes this person did these bad things because of these bad situations but that doesn't mean they're okay that doesn't mean they're justified yeah like it's it's really hard to avoid that by making characters more sympathetic that you make everything they do sympathetic but this very much tears you away from that by um i'm not even like sure fully sure how it accomplishes it but it very much shows you that like the way that they're acting isn't appropriate it isn't good and it's essentially Utena being this block in their life, preventing them from getting the things they want that is allowing them to be able to look at themselves more clearly and to be able to change away from being like people who aren't like doing good things or treating people in their lives well. Right. It's it it, it is it's it's very cool. Um I think is what I really came out of is like I was very impressed by it and like I had gone gone in with some like I I don't know if maybe I misheard or something but like I I was fully convinced during the egg episode that um like the 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 way that um the way that Nanami dealt with having to like kind of isolate the fact that she she is ashamed of this thing would have her like uh revert into an egg and that would be like her inability to move forward I don't know where I ended up with that from the the discussions I'd had with friends, but like there were there were things that I had gone in there sure that were going to happen that didn't. Not even in just in that really weird, oddly specific case, but like other things where it's just like there were, there were these very impressive um, feats where it's just like these things happen you you weren't expecting them and it and it was better for it. Uh, everything came together in a way that, like, that sort of storytelling doesn't always do. And that's what I, I was really happy about with it. Like, I definitely relate to the struggles of some of these characters. I mean, not wholly, but, like, it it it, w- it, it reminded me of how human you can make characters and how relatable you can make them. Mm-hmm. So, um, what did you expect? suspect like going into Utena like I always find it interesting like when someone goes into a series it's been very built up for them like a movie that was popular years ago that you're seeing for the first Mm -hmm. time like you very much had this like kind of series like built up to you for you so I'm curious as to how that manifested and how that affected you this is like the opposite of how I felt with um, Evangelion Evangelion I was like I I thought it was like it was going to be the most inscrutable series and basically, it was all going to be like this this super heady psychological stuff. And uh, Revolutionary Girl Lieutenant is basically the opposite. I went in thinking it was a it was a much more direct story. Like the 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 plot pushed forward in this very straightforward fashion, narratively and thematically, and sort of like everything played into each other. And that's absolutely not 
what Utena is. Utena is this this mess of seemingly disconnected stories coming together to create this huge thematic purpose that has less focus on whether or not you're following the narrative and whether or not you're following the themes. It actually really does have a very similar thing to uh, Evangelion in that, where both series are are they have this aspect where all of the character relationships are defined by a single concept. Mm-hmm. And, and like with, um, and Megalion that presents the concept of the, uh, hedgehog dilemma that you can't really get close to people, uh, without, uh, hurting them and pushing them away. And we see through every character's relationship with one another different aspects of how that manifests. Um, so much that it is also what, uh, colors how the story ends. Uh, with Utena, everyone, is uh, we're not really given a clear name to the uh, concept of what binds these characters together, but they're all very much chasing after uh, things they can't get from other people um, and unable to progress because they're blindsided by this sort of um, obsession or want or need from other people. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, definitely. And so um, we're getting we're getting near the end, and I, uh, we got a uh, we got a question from a fan to answer, and I thought this would be a good way to capstone our discussion. Um, this comes in from a friend of the show, QB. Thank you, QB. Do you think that Revolutionary Girl Lieutenant is a misleading title given the eventual outcome of the series, and would you want to change it if you could? Uh, I mean. I honestly think like it's a it's a really perfect title just because Utena as a character like is revolutionary like not only in the fact that she is literally revolutionizing the world through the means of the story as by uh, self actualizing and becoming this like fuller person and able to uh, declare herself to the world in that sense. Mm-hmm. But just also due to the fact that it's her steadfastness in being herself and not standing down from that. And anytime she did try to stand down from that, like, she realized that she was living a lie, right? Right, like all the times that she's kind of pushed to be, like, a princess or, like, a proper girl. Yeah, um, and that's, I don't know, that's what I really uh, like about her is that she is revolutionary, especially, like, at the time, like, she's, um, showing that it's okay to, like, present yourself as however you want to be as long as you're, you know, being your truest self. Yeah. And, like, I I don't know if it's, it is very, like, misleading. Like, there is still a revolution happening, or I guess revelation, happening with all these characters because of the interactions that they have with Utena. Like, there is still something revolutionary about her in the way that she ends up affecting these people's lives, even if she doesn't bring forth the revolution of the world that maybe was expected. I don't think there's another... I don't know, I don't think there would be another title that would capture the same sort of, like... I don't know, like, it's 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 kind of a perfect title because it is an encapsulation of everything, and yet it reveals nothing. <laughs> But, I mean, titles are always, like, really, like, shallow things for TV series anyway. Sometimes they're, like, very, like, descriptive. Sometimes they're nonsensical. Sometimes they're just simple. Like, it's whatever you want to use to draw people 
to the attention to the work and to give them a means to discuss the whole of the thing with a simple term. Yeah, and sometimes it's, you know, a 20-word a long question that just in, uh, explains the entire plot of the story. I was going to say, which is exactly why light novel names don't work, but you did that better. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think, it, I think it's fine. I think it's good. And I think The Adolescence of Utena is also, like, a really good title for what that um, particular- I, I really like the- for- Okay. I really like the alternate um, translation of that title, which is like Adolescent Apocalypse Utena, which is also true in that it's literally the apocalypse. Yeah, that and like it, it plays into the fact that there there is a there's a bit of like adolescence there and like learning to grow up and, and pass from that point of like childhood and the longing for that sort of comfortability and pushing into adulthood. Yeah, like, it, it very much represents this, like, literal apocalypse that has apparently happened in Utena, but also, like, it literally, like, would translate, um, as, like, a phrase to be the end of childhood. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, um, thank you for the question, QB. I'm glad we got to talk about this. And, uh, real quick, if you're interested in checking out this show, the series is available both on the YouTube channel for the current rights holder, Nozomi Entertainment, and also Amazon Prime Video. Um, there is a DVD box set through Right Stuff Anime that you can get, and also Nozomi Entertainment is planning on releasing a Blu-ray box set later this year that will include the TV series and the movie. So there are a lot of ways, actually, to, to catch up with this one, uh, especially compared to Evangelion, where everything's been out of print forever and the people holding the rights won't do anything with it. Um, and I, there, you know... Um, I don't know anything about the dub. I don't know how good it is, but I know the subtitled version is Not fully very. available. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it, I know the subtitled version is fully available both on Amazon and on um, Nozomi Entertainment's YouTube channel for free. Uh, that one is. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that's pretty readily available. And I think if you've ever been interested, there's, there's really no better time to get into it because I think people are going to be talking about it since it's the, the 20th anniversary. Um, so before we wrap this up, can I end this with one final, like, revelation about Utena? There are so many revelations about Utena, you might as well just, uh, drop another one. Um, so the- every, uh, Nanami episode that it seems like a goofy joke makes sense in the narrative. They're all caused by Anthe. Um, she makes the curry, which swaps bodies with, uh, Utena. Uh, she also gives the cowbell to Nanami. I don't know if she directly caused the egg, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, um, what about the one where she uh, fights all those animals? I'd, I'd be willing to believe that the coincidence that three or four stampeding animals come across her is not actually a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there's... Ant- Anthe's pretty sneaky. I think that's the key point there. <laughs> yeah, An- Anthe... Well, Anthe, as, an, as a proxy for Akio is causing all of these things to happen to push forward his narrative. Um, okay, so uh, with that, I'm Karen Sweet. You can catch me at Sweet and Awful on Twitter. Uh, that's Sweet and Awful with the letter N and not and or the and symbol. And you can catch the podcast at Twitter uh, at at Coco underscore disaster, where you can find us uh, tweeting about please send us questions and if anything else comes up, you can get information there about news or the the various um, 
weird anime merchandise that we may tweet about or make jokes about. Um, and we have a website at CocoDisaster.com where you can check out our archives and our latest episodes and things like that and get contact information to be able to send us stuff. And I am available online at at Chorpsaway, C-H-O-R-P-S-A-W-A-Y. I definitely picked a very easy-to-remember name uh, for Outsiders. Yeah, uh, this has been fun. Thank you for uh, joining us, Sweet. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Especially on what ended up being uh, relatively short notice. And <laughs> um, join us next time where I will be talking with my friend Lascari about the Nisio Isen anime Katana Gatari. But until then, I've been Chorps Away. And I'm Sweet and Awful. And sweet dreams. Yeah.